minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Today is day four of the nine days, day four of our nine days format here at JM in the AM. Uh, the centerpiece of our nine days format is the amazing uh, lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine. Uh, who has been enlightening us on a variety of topics. Today we're going to start with a series entitled The Lost Communities. And uh, The Lost Communities begins with a lecture on the areas of um, Hungary and Slovakia. Hungary and Slovakia. From the uh, amazing historical perspective of Rabbi Beryl Wine. For you, early morning, nine days formatted, J.M. in the A.M. The uh, Jews came to this part of the world with the Romans. That's why it's called Romania. The Romans uh, made a colony here, and the Jews came in the uh, second century before the Common Era. There were Jews in this part of the world as well, already in Romania. Hungary, Bohemia, and uh, they all follow the rivers. The main river there is the Danube, uh, which cuts through Yugoslavia, Austria, Hungary, uh, and it's the uh, main arterial waterway, and the Jews set up their communities where the Romans set up their communities, and uh, they were traders, merchants, etc. But the main Jewish settlement did not occur until the uh, 12th and 13th centuries when the Jews were driven from uh, France and uh, there were the pogroms in Germany and then the Black Death pogroms uh, that uh, almost uh, destroyed the Jewish community in Germany so then they moved here and uh, they prospered they were very uh, very welcome to the extent that there was much less persecution in middle Europe than there was in Germany, there was in France, just as the Jews prospered in Poland originally. But uh, as the Habsburg Empire took over in the 16th century, what later became the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then you already had anti-Jewish decrees. And beginning in the uh, 1700s, you had very terrible anti-Jewish decrees. Only one son from the family was allowed to marry because there were too many Jews. Then there was conscription to the army, all sorts of problems. So then the Jews tried to get away, and they moved deeper into uh, Hungary, which even though Hungary was part of the empire, but it was always somewhat uh, independent. 
and the Hungarian language has nothing to do with any of the languages of the other uh, countries in the area. It's not Slavic, it's not Roman. It's close to Finnish, believe it or not. That's the closest language uh, that it is. It's a completely different language, and uh, because of that, the Hungarians always saw themselves as different. Eventually, they saw themselves as special. And uh, uh, Hungarian Jewry always had a uh, particular flavor to it. Uh, so we'll begin, uh, really, in the uh, 18th century, in the 19th century, and the first area that we're going to visit uh, right through there is going to be Bratislava, which is Slovakia, which was called Prezborg by the Jews. It was a one of the four imperial cities of the uh, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and it became famous because of the Khatam Sofer, who was the rov there, but it was a famous city even before the Khatam Sofer. The original Semach Tzemach was the rov there, and had a yeshiva there. There was a very close affinity between the Jews of Germany and the Jews of Slovakia, Moravia, the Czech Republic, Bohemia. In fact, the Hassam Sofer came from Frankfurt am Main. And all of his chuvot are signed, uh, Moshe Sofer me Frankfurt the Main. And later, in a, uh, an opposite fashion, the Breuer family, the son-in-law of Reb Shimshon Refoil Hirsch, they came from Slovakia, and they became the Rabonim in Frankfurt am Main. So there always was this, uh, like a railroad between the two uh, areas, and they influenced each other. So in Slovakia, in Prezborg, for instance, there's a lot of Yekishkeit which we will not find, for instance, when the Chassidim come to Hungary, that disappears. But here in, in Bratislava, which is Prezborg, the Chassam Sofer was a rov in Matisdorf. Matisdorf is also, it's famous as a neighborhood in Yerushalayim today, because it was built by uh, Chassidim from Matisdorf. But he was the rov in Matisdorf. Dorf means village. And he, from Matersdorf, came to Prezborg. He came in uh, the late 1790s. And he came to the Napoleonic War. And Napoleon was conquering Austria. In the great shul in Bratislava, there was, until the Nazis destroyed it, there was a shell, a cannonball, in the roof of the shul, on the rafters. That there was a direct hit on the shul, but that the cannonball got stuck in the rafter and never fell, so no one was injured. And the Hassam Sofer said that they should keep it as a sign of a nest, never to repair it, never to remove it. And it was there until uh, the 1940s when uh, the uh, Slovaks, together with the Germans, destroyed the Jewish community. He made a famous yeshiva here, the most famous yeshiva uh, practically uh, outside of the Lithuanian yeshivas. And the yeshiva Prezborg, it had uh, 400, 450 students. The Chassam Sofer was a, uh, he knew German. He was the official rabbiner uh, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was the main person that uh, fought against reform. And uh, he was very successful because the government 
the non-Jewish government was on his side. Most of the other times, the non-Jewish government was on the side either the Reform or the Moskilim, and against the Orthodox. But he, because of his personality, etc., the government was on his side. And since he was the main rabbiner, the official rabbi, nobody else could be a rabbi without his stamp. And so naturally, he didn't give the stamp to the Reform, and uh, they were not strong there as they were in other places. Now, if you look at the names here, there's a yeshiva, there's a famous yeshiva, Nitra Galante. Galante, before the Second World War, uh, in the period between the wars, was one of the most famous yeshivas in Slovakia. It had uh, 350, 400 students. It was a uh, combination of German and Hungarian, Hasidic, non-Hasidic, it was a great yeshiva that produced many, many great people. Most of the Rabbonim came from Prezborg. They came from the Chassam Sofer's yeshiva. That was called Oberland. They were above the Carpathian Mountains. And then Hungary was on the other side. At this time, and if we look around, for instance, there's Chust, Ungvar, all the famous names of uh, Slovakian uh, Jewry, Nitra, so we know Rabbi Weissmandel was in Nitra, and the Nitra Yeshiva was rebuilt in uh, upstate New York, in Mount Kisco, a very unlikely place. There's a famous novel that a Jewish novelist wrote about Orthodox Jews coming to Mount Kisco and the effect that it had upon uh, the Jewish community. The non-Jewish community wasn't nervous about it, but the Jewish community had a very hard time with it. So uh, all of these places were places that had a great deal of Torah and they were long, old, established communities. What happened, though, is that beginning in the seven, late 1700s, early 1800s, the Hasidim from Poland, from Galicia... So Galicia was also part of the Habsburg Empire, so you could move, you didn't have to cross borders, so to speak. And they started to drift south into this area. And therefore you had the great Hasidic Rabbeim, the first one was the Kaliver Rebbe. Kaliv was the first brought Hasidus to Hungary. And so these were called, they were not called Misnagdim, the way the Lithuanians were called, because they were not fierce opponents of Hasidus. The Hassam Sofer himself was a Talmud of the Hafla in Frankfurt am Main, and the Hafla was Hasid. Uh, believe it or not, the Rav of Frankfurt am Main, he never exhibited his Hasidus, but he was a Hasid. Horvitz was his name, and uh, he was a uh, very, very famous Talmud Chochem, but he was a Chosid, and uh, uh, so the Sofer wasn't an opponent of Chosidus, but he wasn't a Chosid. But they adopted certain Hasidic minhogim, which exist until today in the Ashkenazic, they call themselves Ashkenazim. They were Chosidim and Ashkenazim. Not misnagdim. Misnagdim has a much harsher tone to it. And the Ashkenazim adopted many Hasidic customs, such as wearing a gartel and a few other customs that were uh, Hasidic, but they were not Hasidim. And you had this tremendous influx of Hasidim into Romania, Hungary, Slovakia. So eventually there became contests. Anytime they had to take a rod. So there was a contest, do you take an Ashkenaz, or do you take a Chosid? 
and uh, so sometimes the contests were resolved peacefully. Many times they were not resolved peacefully. Uh, just as an example, and we'll get there we'll, uh, when we get to Romania, uh, that the, the Satmarov, who was a Chosid, is called the Satmarov, not the Satmarebbe. Because he became the Rav in Satmar in 1936 on the condition that he wouldn't be a Rebbe. What's the difference between a Rav and a Rebbe? About $100,000. <laughs> it's, it's a different thing, a completely different thing. But he was the first Chosid that was elected to the Rabbonus in Satmar, which until then had been a bastion of Ashkenaz. But the Chosidim were stronger. And as we'll also see, the Chosidim were less likely uh, to compromise on religious issues because there developed in Hungary uh, different kinds. There was reform, but there was also something called neolog. And neolog literally meant new law. We can't compare it to anything today, it, but it was, uh, it was very traditional, but it was not. They took out the beam in the middle of the shul and other things. Because of that, therefore, they were subjected uh, it was part of the war that existed in the, in the Jewish world. And the Chassidim were the uh, stronger opponents. They, they fought it very strongly. Anyway, the Yeshiva in Preshburg is here in Yerushalayim today. And there are direct descendants. There are many, many direct descendants of the Chassam Sofer. Their name is Sofer Schreiber in the Yeshiva itself and in other places. They were the main force in uh, Slovakia and the main force in uh, creating yeshivas throughout this area. Other yeshivas that existed in Slovakia that we know, like uh, Popo, uh, the Popo Rebbe, right? So that, uh, that became Chzidik, but it was originally Ashkenaz. Eisenstadt. So Eisenstadt uh, is where Rabbi Hildesheimer began his career. He was the Roman Eisenstadt. But in Eisenstadt, he tried to make a, uh, introduce secular studies into the curriculum of the yeshiva. And in that part of the world, it didn't go at all. And there was a tremendous machlokas against him. So uh, he followed the advice of many uh, great rabbis in the area who told him that he should take it to Germany. And he did. He took it to Berlin. And Berlin, he was enormously successful. He built the Hildesheimer Seminary. But he's really Hungarian. He's not German. He's, uh, you know, Slovakian. Uh, and his first uh, success was here in Eisenstadt. One more point on the Slovakian yeshivas, and then we'll move on. The Slovakian yeshivas also taught a trade in the yeshiva. And the trade was either printing, weaving, dyeing, in other words, a practical trade. Because the goal was not to produce Rabonim or Dayonim, the goal was to produce the Torah who would be able to make their way in the world. And therefore almost all the Slovakian yeshivas had what then they called, this is way before Zionism, they called it Torah Vavodah, but they did not mean it in the sense that, for instance, the Polo Mizrahi meant it later, but they meant in the sense that two or three hours a day would be devoted towards teaching a trade or a profession so that the young man uh, would be able to uh, make his way in the world. And uh, this was their tradition. If you want to read about what happened to Slovakian Jewry, Rabbi Weissmandel has a sefer called Minametsar. That book has been translated into English as well. It was the first book I ever read regarding the Holocaust. I, I was still, uh, I don't know, I was 18 or 19 when I read it, and it made an impression that lasts until today. And he discusses there uh, 
Slovakia became an independent country under Germany. They broke it off from Czech, from the Czech Republic. Today also it's an independent country. It was governed by a priest, Tiso, Monsignor Tiso. He was the head of the government. And Weissmandel uh, records that the, uh, they not rounded up 10,000 Jewish children to send them away by the trains to the killing uh, places. And he somehow bribed his way to get an appointment with Tiso. And he said to him, he said, how can you kill innocent, innocent children? And Tiso answered, there is no innocent Jewish child. Tiso was executed after the war. The Russians took care of him. Uh, the, uh, but the Slovakian Jewry was destroyed completely. And uh, Rabbi Weissmandel went on to be one of the leaders of the Hatzola movement. But the book is so furious because of the fact that he saw what could have been done with a little money and a little influence, how thousands could have been saved and how really nothing was done until it was far too late. So that's Slovakia. We're deep in the heart of Hungary and this is the Budapest area. Budapest was uh, two cities. One was called Buda and one was called Pest, with the river, the Danube, in between. And it wasn't united as one city until the uh, late 1800s. Budapest, to a great extent, like many other cities in Europe, was a Jewish city. The Jews built it, the Jews ran it, the Jews were the main uh, financial force in the city. There's a book called Budapest 1900, which is a very fascinating book, written by a non-Jew on the history of Budapest, in which he shows that uh, Jewish life, even though the Jews were only about a quarter of the population, that the entire cultural life and much of the political life and the financial life uh, was uh, Jewish. Amsterdam was a city like that, was built by the Jews in the 1600s, and to a great extent we can say New York was a city like that, or is a city like that. There are places where if you have a concentrated Jewish population, and other things fall into place, so it becomes, so to speak, a Jewish city. Now, Budapest was already modern. And here uh, the reform were strong. In fact, uh, there's an enormous uh, temple in Budapest until today. It has uh, thousands of seats. And it was the main synagogue. And uh, when Jews started to make money, so uh, socially, if you wanted to climb, so that's where you climbed to. You didn't go to the Shtibel and you didn't go to the yeshiva. You went uh, because there you became socially acceptable. But the Hungarian Jews, even the very religious Hungarian Jews, Hungary was different. Jews spoke Hungarian, whereas they didn't speak Polish, and they didn't speak Russian, and they didn't speak Lithuanian. They all spoke Hungarian. The Satmarov Zechertaglavrocha told me when he was in Miami Beach in my home once, he was commenting about that. So he said a lady came to him, they opened a new butcher shop in Williamsburg that the, the Rov gave his hefshir to. A lady came and asked him, can she buy in this butcher shop? Is it kosher? So he said, certainly it's kosher. You know, we, we've got the tudaf and the kehila, you know, and everything. He's an upstanding Jew. She said he doesn't speak Hungarian. <laughs> and she said it not as a joke. Right? Because that was a sign, uh, it, it was just part of it. It remained so. Uh, Hungarian Jewry had its own special stamp. 
And uh, it's interesting, uh, I don't know interesting is the right word, but the Nazis didn't get to Hungary until 1944. Hungary was an ally of Germany. They were able uh, to keep the Nazis out, so they kept the Jews, they didn't give them great rights, but Jews survived without any problems. And then in 1944, the uh, regent, Horthy, saw the handwriting on the wall, and he knew that the war was lost. He wanted to make a peace with Russia before Russia swallowed Hungary, as it did. He knew it was going to happen. So he wanted to take Hungary out of the war and make an armistice or a peace agreement or surrender to the Allies. And uh, Germany found out about it. So Germany invaded Hungary. And they kidnapped Horthy's son and held him as a hostage. And then they took Horthy himself away. And Eichmann and the killing machine came to Budapest. All of this is recorded now in the Eichmann trial. But uh, we have to say that Hungarian Jewry, out of all of Eastern European Jewry, has had the greatest influence on post-war Jewry. Because they survived. Even though 200,000 went into the, uh, to Auschwitz, but 200 to 250,000 survived. And that didn't happen anywhere else. The Lithuanian Jews were 99% destroyed. The Polish Jews were 95% destroyed. They, didn't, they just didn't make it. And here, 50% of Hungarian Jewry survived. So therefore, the Hungarian Hasidus, which was much more, uh, I don't want to use the word extreme, but much more uh, rigid than, let's say, Polish Hasidus, I'll give you an example that the Ger Rebbe, the, uh, the uh, base Israel, the Svas Emes' uh, son, uh, made a yeshiva in Warsaw, the Masifta of Warsaw it was called, in 1922, and he made it with secular studies in the yeshiva, in Warsaw. So a delegation of Hungarian Rabbonim came to him to protest. And he said to them, you take care of Hungary, I'll take care of Poland. I know what my Hasidim need. But the fact that, you know, somebody would come to the Gera Rebbe and stick it to him. So that's what happened now. These are the ones that survived. And it's their brand, so to speak, that has influenced all the rest of... Because they're always looking over your shoulder. And that goes to explain why a lot of things look the way they look. So that's Minash Shemaim. I mean, God decided that they would survive, so they survived. But it's uh, the, uh, the influence of men and women separate. So separate began different tables, then it began with a mechitza, then it began with a different room, today it's in different building. In Lithuania they didn't get nervous about it. That was not, not at all part of the culture. So we have uh, pictures, which uh, Art Scroll refused to put in my book, but we have pictures of weddings of great gedolim where there are men and women together at the tables, and there's no mechitza for the dancing. But uh, I just take that as an example. Uh, the same thing, kashris, glot, uh, all of these things, you know, the, the push, uh, that is all based upon uh, how, uh, how Hungarian Jewry lived.
and therefore their influence because simply because they survived. And one of the towns in Hungary is Eger. Reb Kiva Eger. Now you'll find that most of the last names of the great Jews are all names of towns. Now there doesn't mean anything. So there's an Eger that's in Silesia, and there's an Eger that's here in Hungary. And people who are named Eiger, Eger, etc., are descended from people that come from uh, these towns. Now, in Hungary, the yeshivas were outside of the main cities. Budapest was not known for a place for yeshivas. And also, uh, the great Rebbes also were in the hinterland and not in the great cities. This is the end of side one. J.M. in the A.M., 629 on this uh, Thursday morning. We are in the midst of uh, a lecture by Beryl Wine on Hungary and Slovakia. This is from a series entitled The Lost Communities. And um, <laughs> in the span of the last 25 minutes, I have learned a lot, to say the least. <laughs> Just when you think you know so much, you realize how much you don't know. It's a, a Thursday, July 11th, 7-11 of 2013, the fourth day in the uh, month of uh, in the month of Menachem Av. The year is 5773. Tough Shin Ein Gimel. Um, full weather forecast and everything else you'd expect from us coming up here at JMDM. We'll also talk about the OU webcast coming up on uh, Tuesday, Tishabov, and a reminder that we will be here Tishabov morning on Tuesday with a Kinnis service. Rabbi Goldwasser and myself traditionally lead that service, and we'll have that for you coming up on Tuesday between 6 and 9. A uh, An opportunity for those who are not able to be in synagogue on Tuesday morning to have some type of Tisha B'Av morning experience, and I guess I mean that in both ways, morning and morning. Uh, today's Thursday, which means that uh, tomorrow our weekly update will take place. You'll hear Malcolm Homeline, 7.40 in the morning, with the weekly update. That'll happen at 7.40 tomorrow morning as we go through the events of this week and talk about this crazy world of ours. So make sure to be tuned in for that tomorrow, 7.40, here at JM in the AM, and of course at jmintheam.org. All right, uh, it is time to continue with our presentation of our barrel wine on the topic of Hungary and Slovakia, right here at JM in the AM. Bought over for centuries, called Transylvania, uh, Siebenbergen. So... Uh, that uh, goes between Romania and Hungary, goes back and forth. Today it's part of Romania again, after the settlement of the Second World War. And uh, so there, there was the clash, a tremendous clash of the Jews. The Maskilim were there, the Ashkenaz were there, the Chassidim were there, and that's really where the war took place. In a place like Budapest, it was more live and let live. It was more cosmopolitan. But in the smaller towns, the struggle was uh, very, very fierce. It reflects itself today because a lot of that ferocity is still with us. These are all uh, unpronounceable Hungarian names, (laughs) unless you're born there. This is already Zimbergen. These are already uh, border towns, uh, Romania and uh, 
Hungary, you have Debrecen, for instance. Now, it was called Siebenbergen because there were seven fortresses that were built by the Hungarian government to protect themselves from the Romanians. In this area, that's where the Jews lived. And uh, this area became heavily Hasidish. Mishkalots, these areas became heavily Hasidish. The Jews there uh, were uh, farmers. The Jews there, this is the Carpathian Mountains. So the Jews there were farmers, they were shepherds, uh, they were cattle raisers. So you had the Jews in Budapest who were white-collar people, let's say. And here you had the, the rural Jewry. And the rural Jews are the ones that remain the most loyal to uh, Jewish tradition. And they were the ones that the Hasidim overwhelmed. And eventually all of these places became Hasidish. Debrecen, uh, there's a Debrecener Rebbe in uh, New York today, in Brooklyn, very big. And uh, uh, some of the other places. We're going to go around the corner here to Romania, where we'll see... Uh, Many, uh, many of the famous Rebbe's that were in this area. Romania borders on something called Bessarabia. So Bessarabia was always fought between Russia and Romania. So Romania is always in a constant battle with Hungary on one side and Russia on the other side for territory. Uh, the capital of Bessarabia really is Odessa. But it uh, stretched all the way till here. So you had large cities in Romania, Cluj, you had Oradia, but you also had Yasi, and these were all major Jewish centers. In the smaller communities is where the Hasidim were concentrated, and here you have, for instance, in back we have Sigit, so the Sigit Rebbe, right? All of these places were originally Ashkenaz. And the Chassidim over the last hundred years were the ones that came, and especially after the First World War, where there was a tremendous migration out of Poland because of the anti-Semitic government. And so they came to Romania, they came to Hungary to escape that. So Sigit, and on top we have Satmar. So Satmar was Satu Mari, which means Saint Mary. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the, the Lord has an exquisite sense of humor. So uh, all, all of that, uh, well, in Litta there was a town called Ka Calvary, Calavaria. You know, and the Calavaria Rov, he was, that was a famous stella, was Mount Calvary. So uh, you live in a Christian world, it rubs off, you cannot help it. The Hasidic yeshivas were different than the Ashkenaz yeshivas. Because the Hasidic yeshivas, first of all, emphasized loyalty to a rabbit and also emphasized Kabbalistic studies, emphasized the, uh, the entire ideas that were basic to Hasidus. But nevertheless, the, uh, the yeshivas were very successful, and they were well attended, and they also, all the Hasidic yeshivas had a work program, a work training program for the students, because of the fact that the Hasidim more than the Ashkenazim realized that their students were not going to become rabbis and were not going to become dayanim, and the, the Kohel system didn't exist then. But, but again, many of them became farmers, uh, cattle raisers, uh, the agricultural professions, instead of going into, uh, into other types of, uh, of work. Now, uh, the uh, Romanian Jews 
suffered greatly in the Second World War because in 1938 an anti-Semitic government took over in Romania. The anti-Semitism in Europe then was uh, epidemic. It knew no boundaries so that every country in Europe was infested with it, uh, some more and some less, but everyone had it. But in Romania it was more. There was a uh, paramilitary organization called the Iron Guard, which was an imitation of Hitler's uh, SA and SS troops, of his uh, private army. And beginning in 1938, you had open pogroms against the Jews, for which the government did nothing to stop it. And because of that, therefore, a lot of Romanian Jews tried to escape into Hungary. Because in Hungary, even though Hungary was anti-Semitic, it did not allow those excesses to take place, at least publicly, on a wide scale. But the Romanian community was beginning to be destroyed even before the war, simply because of the Romanian government. Now, after the war, Ceausescu became the uh, dictator of Romania, and he ruled for almost 40 years. It was a very interesting relationship. He was a megalomaniac. He's a Saddam Hussein without the weapons. He was a, if you've ever been to Bucharest and seen his palace, I mean, there, you know, the Versailles looks like a stiebel <laughs> compared to his palace. It is just, it, it, it's just beyond human imagination how a person could do that. There were a lot of Jews in Romania after the war. Part of the problem was that the Jews were the communists. And because the Romania was forced to have a communist government by Russia, so the Jews were in power. Or many Jews in power. But uh, Ceausescu somehow protected the Jews, and he was the only Iron Curtain country that had relationships with Israel and supported Israel. And there was a uh, chief rabbi there by the name of Rosen, who I met a few times, and uh, who uh, was Ceausescu's right-hand man, I mean, you know. But on the other hand, he protected the Jews. There was, there was always shkita, there always was kosher meat in Romania. Uh, there was a minimum of Hebrew education allowed in Romania. And more importantly, emigration was allowed on a small scale, but on a steady scale. So that from 1956 on, you had over 100,000 Romanian Jews that came here to Israel at a time when the Iron Curtain was iron still. And that was all done because of, uh, uh, and there was a lot of money involved and all sorts of things, but it all worked. And uh, the greatest deal was, he had 7,500 Sifre Torah, Ceausescu, and he sold them all to Israel, and Israel in turn sent him materials that he needed for the 7,500 Sifre Torah. He also made a deal that uh, part of the exchange for the Sifre Torah was that Carmel would use Romanian Shlivovitz, which they did for quite a number of years. So even though you bought it in the Carmel bottle, you were drinking Ceausescu's Shlivovitz, because that was all part of the deal to get the Sifre Torah out. And out of the 7,500, I think 4,000 or 4,300 remained kosher. They were able to fix them, and they distributed them all over the land of Israel and to all the army bases, etc. In Poland, they made a business out of the ruins. I had a friend of mine that was a, 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 an art dealer in New York, a Judaica dealer, a very, very fine person, interesting person. So he told me that in 1958, he got a call from the Polish consulate 
that if he wants to go to Poland, there's something there for him. So he went. They take him into an enormous room. The room is filled with Judaica. Candlesticks, uh, candelabras from shul. I mean, Florence and David remember our shul in Muncie. We had this gigantic Hanukkah menorah from the 1700s, a Polish one, and then I bought one for the yeshiva also. And uh, he had all of this, and he had the Sifrei Torah, and he had Nevi'im, everything. So he said, okay, I'll take this and this. They said, no, 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 no. They said, you take everything. There's one price here. For you take everything. We don't sell piecemeal. He told me how he had to work to get a letter of credit out of his bank in New York, and to, to buy everything. So I asked him, where did the money go? He said, well, how should I know where the money went, right? You know, you know, they, they, you know they all divided up amongst themselves and the corruption. Yeah, but it became a big business. But Ceausescu didn't use it as a business. He used it as a, uh, uh, as a commodity to trade, right? Bartered that because Israel then supplied him, uh, some say even with weapons, but they, supp- they supplied him with things that he wanted. Even today in Romania, there's a Jewish community of about 35 thousand and there is uh, Kashrus and there are uh, religious Jews uh, there's some sort of Jewish life left there something which doesn't exist in Lithuania or Poland or many parts of Russia where there is no Jewish life left whatsoever so the Jews uh, as I mentioned the Jews were here in Romania from the time of the Romans they felt a strong affinity to the country the great Rebbe that came to Romania was the Visionitzer they came from Poland, from Galicia, the Hager family. And they settled in Vizhnitz. And eventually Vizhnitz became the major Hasidus in Romania. And today it's one of the major Hasidus in the world. They have a, one brother is in Muncie and the other is here in Bnei Brak. But they are, they are very, very big and they're very powerful and they're politically very well connected. But they were in Vizhnitz and they came to Romania. And... Uh, uh, because of the fact that great Rebbe's escaped uh, to Romania and to Hungary, the Chassidim followed. And when the Chassidim followed, so then it became Chassidish. There's one uh, story that I want to tell you that uh, it's funny. Hungary, and because of the fact that throughout the middle uh, period between the First and Second World Wars, Romania, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia all had sealed borders. You couldn't get across. And so sometimes the Chassidim were caught in one country and the Rebbe was in another country. And you couldn't go see the Rebbe. So the Chassidim always tried with bribes and sneaking across, etc. In the middle of the 1920s, there was like the World Cup in soccer, the European Championship. And the European Championship was between Czechoslovakia and Romania. And because of that, all three countries, in honor of this great event, opened the borders. The game was played on Shabbos. So the Chassidim bought up all the tickets because they wanted to go see the Rebbe. And, you know, you couldn't get a ticket to the soccer game. The stadium was half empty because nobody showed up. (laughs) And they had special trains that went, etc. Anyway, the uh, Romanian team lost very badly like six to nothing, whatever it was. And the Chassidim were riding back on the same train with the Romanian team, 
The next day on Sunday, they came to the railroad station. They saw there was a mob at the train station, and the mob was booing and hollering. So they thought it was a pogrom. They refused. They refused to get off the train, right? And they didn't realize that it was in honor of the soccer team. It had nothing to do with them. The fact that the uh, country was the countries were so divided. And they were so angry at each other, and like in Yugoslavia as well, all uh, prevented really a normal Jewish life from occurring, because previously it was all part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and you could walk wherever you wanted to. Uh, I want to say one more thing about Romania. Uh, Romanian Jewry uh, suffered a uh, strange fate in the Second World War. Romania supplied many uh, divisions of its army, to Germany to fight on the Eastern Front because Romania wanted to reacquire Bessarabia and Hitler promised them that uh, they would get parts of Bessarabia back and therefore they were very active much more active than let's say Hungary Hungary also supplied men but the uh, Hungarians had no heart for it but the Romanians uh, were part of the uh, Eastern Front what the Romanians did was they made what they called labor division. Labor divisions were mainly comprised of Jews who were impressed into the service of the Romanian army and they were the ones they sent them to check whether there were mines ahead. They were the ones that uh, built the roads. Contrary to our understanding, most of the Second World War on the Eastern Front was still fought with horse-drawn vehicles. The German army was only partially mechanized. And so they're the ones that took the horses, they're the ones that pulled them out of the mud. You can imagine that most people did not survive the labor divisions. So they were not killed in terms of being sent to, uh, to Auschwitz or in terms of the Einsatz group and shooting them, but they were literally worked to death in these types of forced labor divisions. After the war, the Russians captured all of these Jews that were left and sent them to Siberia. And most died in Siberia. I knew a, uh, a Rav from Toronto, the teacher Rav, of a Greenwald. He came to Miami uh, and uh, he was a guest with us for many years. I used to learn with him in the, in the backyard under the spreading grapefruit tree. And... Uh, so he, t- he never talked about what happened to him during the war. And then one day, like, he was overcome that he had to tell. So he said that he was in this labor division. He said 90% of the labor division was wiped out. And he said he somehow survived. He deserted. And he survived. And then the Russians captured him. The Russians captured him. They sent him to Siberia. So he said in Siberia, in their labor camp in Siberia, he said no one survived more than two to three months. There was no food, the weather was unbelievably uh, atrocious, there was no clothing, no protection, no heat. Two to three months was the most. The captain, the KGB captain of the labor camp was a Jew. And the KGB captain knew that he was a Rav, somehow, someone told him. So he came to him and he said to him, listen, he said, I know you're innocent of any crimes against Russia. Write a letter to Kaganovich. Kaganovich was Stalin's brother-in-law. 
and was the last Jew on the Politburo. Write him a letter and tell him your story. He said, maybe it'll help. He said there was a rule that if you wrote a letter, you got shot immediately. And he said the captain was so uh, brutal that you never knew, you know, whether he was playing with you or not. But he decided that since he's going to die anyway, he said he was down to nothing and he had no strength left. So he wrote the letter. And he gave the letter to the captain. Five or seven days later, the KGB, the big guys come. And they pull up in front. And they call all the prisoners out, all the laborers. And they said that they have instructions from Kaganovich to release Greenwald. But they're not going to release Greenwald unless Greenwald tells them how he got the Kaganovich. So Greenwald says, I don't know, I don't know Kaganovich. I don't know, he said, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. So they said, you're going to stay here and die. He said, well, 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 I can't tell you something I don't know. But they were afraid of Kaganovich. So at the end of the day, they took him. And they changed his clothing. And they gave him some food. And they put him on a train. And when the train crossed the Romanian border, they pushed him off the train. And that's how he survived. He came to Romania. And there he found Jews in Romania. And somehow, uh, again, because Ceausescu uh, was making deals with everybody, uh, somehow the Chesidim heard, you know, and they got him out. And he was a Rebbe in Toronto. You know, uh, life is always stranger than fiction. And uh, I, I imagine that if these stones could talk, they would tell us even uh, more unbelievable stories. We're going to conclude here uh, just a short... Uh, we're here in Germany. So this is Breslau, which is Silesia. Uh, it's eastern Germany. Uh, Breslau was famous for its seminary and for the fact that the Maskilim were very strong there, Posen, uh, all of those areas, the Maskilim were very strong. So even Reb Kiva Eger, who was the Rov in Posen, had a hard time. The Maskilim didn't want to elect him as the Rov. And then his son, Reb Shleime Eger, had even a harder time because the Maskilim didn't want to elect him as a Rov. They were looking for someone more modern, uh, someone that would fit into their uh, idea of what uh, Judaism should look like. This is the Leipzig area. Jews were in Germany, again, the original Jews in Germany, according to Jewish legend, were there from the time of Ezra. And the Jews in Spires and Worms and Mainz were there from the Bayes Risha. And there were Jewish communities all along the Rhine. But uh, the Jews had a hard time in Germany for hundreds and hundreds of years. But they kept on coming back and they had an affinity to Germany. And the Yiddish language was based upon German. So no matter how many times they were thrown out, we see it today. I mean, Frankfurt has 25,000 Jews. There's 60,000 Jews in Germany. One would have imagined that by now we would have got the message. But uh, the Jews always had an affinity towards Germany. And uh, they settled in all of these places. And uh, the great Balitasis were in Regensburg and Rottenburg and all of these cities and the uh, Jews felt very much at home and uh, if you're the last thing we have here Frankfurt on Main, uh Shamshin Refoil Hirsch 
so in his commentary to Chumash, he, uh, you're, you're talking about 1850, 1860. So he said that Esau is improving. You read it today, it, uh, you know, it's, it's a stone on your heart. But it's the reflection of the 19th century German-Jewish mind. Esau is getting better, and we're going to get work it out, and it's all going to be good, and everything, you know. And the great synagogue in Frankfurt was built uh, 60 years before Kristallnacht. It was built the last hundreds of years. No one saw it coming. No one imagined that such a thing could happen. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, I think that's part of the trauma of the Holocaust is that, uh, you know, to a certain extent it came out of nowhere, even though in hindsight we could see that it was going to come. But the way it came and the extent to which it destroyed European Jewry, that was beyond anyone's uh, wildest nightmare. And therefore, perhaps uh, no one really could do anything about it because it was uh, it was beyond beyond thought that such a thing could happen. This concludes lecture. J.M. in the A.M. What a uh, brilliant presentation, Rabbi Beryl Wine. Uh, in this case, we are in the in this series entitled "The Lost Communities: uh, Hungary and Slovakia." Uh, the um, a lecture to open up our J.M. in the A.M. Thursday morning broadcast. It's July 11th, the 4th of Menachem Av, and we are spending a great deal of time being educated this week from Rabbi Beryl Wine and his amazing presentations. Uh, we will break at 8 o'clock this morning and welcome in some of our guests from the OU as uh, they get ready for their big webcast coming up on Tuesday on Tisha B'Av. It's an annual tradition at this point. And... Um, We'll have that for you uh, coming up later on this uh, this morning at JM in the AM. Our uh, Thursday schedule is a little different than usual. Usually we're providing uh, amazing uh, live original content all through our web stream at jmandtheam.org, especially on Thursday. And uh, that will not happen today. We have a uh, hiatus as we uh, continue through the nine days. So we will return with a, uh, a tremendous... Um, a tremendous uh, what's the word? <laughs> I don't want to say. What am I? What am I? How do I put this? We will return with a with a big fanfare. Not bad. Only took me a few seconds to think of it. We'll return with a big fanfare to our uh, live original programming on Wednesday of next week. Uh, Yossi Zweig will conduct a live lunch that will bridge on the tenth of Av on Wednesday, which will bridge uh, twelve noon hour as a cappella Eastern Time, and the 1 p.m. hour as our regular format, and that will get us back into our regular uh, programming on the stream at jmandtheam.org. A couple of things to remind everybody about, including tomorrow our weekly update, 7.40 in the morning with Malcolm Honline as we go through some of the events of this crazy world of ours and uh, what we call our weekly update segment. 8.15, or by Uden will join us from the Holy Land. Tomorrow, uh, that's Friday's uh, schedule. Um, on uh, Monday morning, Erev Tishabov will get everybody ready for the fast. And on Tuesday itself, on the day of the 9th of Av, we will have a Kinnis service live on the air, as has been a tradition of ours here at JM in the AM. If you're not able to make it to synagogue, if you have no choice but to be at work, if you are somebody who normally may not go to synagogue, whatever the case is, join us for a Kinnis presentation on Tuesday morning. Here at JM in the AM. 
On Wednesday, it's stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach. That has become a tradition as well on the 10th of Av. Sort of a hybrid type of programming. Different from the nine days, but different from our regular format. So we'll do that on Wednesday. And then, of course, Thursday, our show from Camp Hask. And back to our regular format here at JM in the AM. On this Thursday, 79 degrees, 75% humidity, winds of southwest at 8 miles per hour. Thunderstorms today with a high temperature of 84. Then tonight, scattered thunderstorms, a low of 71. Tomorrow, scattered thunderstorms, a high only 76 degrees. 84 in Yerushalayim, Tel Aviv and Haifa at 86, a lot at 93. In uh, Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Masora who are getting ready for Shabbos Chazon. They're at 68 degrees, heading up to 76 with some rain today. In general, grab your umbrella. Looks like you may need it. The way the skies look, at least in this area, I can tell you that much. A reminder that the Tisha B'Av prayer service at the United Nations takes place at uh, 2 p.m. this coming Tuesday, the 36th annual public Tisha B'Av prayer service which this year is going to feature a special guest speaker, one of the fathers of the victims of the uh, America's Harav murders of uh, five years ago. Uh, please bring your talis and tefillin and join Rabbi Avi Weiss and uh, all of us as we uh, daven mincha on uh, First Avenue at 43rd Street at the Isaiah Wall. That's First Avenue at 43rd Street in New York City. Information at 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. On Monday night, the Tisha B'Av program in Brooklyn, New York, will feature by uh, Ozer Alpert. During the day on Tuesday on Tisha B'Av itself, Shachris will begin at 8 o'clock at the Yeshiva of Brooklyn, 1200 Ocean Parkway. It'll be followed all day long with presentations by Rabbi Ephraim Levine, Rabbi Shmuel Yaakov Klein, Rabbi Baruch Abinuitz, Rabbi Baruch Hilzenrath, Rabbi Moshe Tovia Leaf, Rabbi Shmuel Dishon, Rabbi Avram Reisman, Rabbi Jonathan Rietti, Rabbi Fischel Schachter, all the Yeshiva of Brooklyn at 1200 Ocean Parkway. Email TorahConnections at Yahoo.com. TorahConnections at Yahoo.com. On um, Tishabov, Project Inspire presents Just a Word. Harnessing our power to bring back and rebuild Klaus Royal. It is a feature film presentation on Tisha B'Av, a 50-minute inspirational video, um, including a dynamic presentation by Charlie Harari with an introduction by David Weinberger. You can go to kiruv.com, K-I-R-U-V.com for information. And... Um, there you'll find the info on that. Um, the Shabbos Nachamu Kashrus event from the OU has been announced. It will happen at Congregation OF Shalom, the Woodridge Shul, on Sunday of Nachamu, July 21st, at 10.30 in the morning, and ask the Rav session with Rabbi Belsky, Rabbi Moshe Elephant, Rabbi Nachum Rabinowitz, or Rabbi Yosef Grossman are all going to be participating. Information you can contact... The OU on that.
America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Golly, it's all in the background. We'll do our news from Israel. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. Uh, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and around the world on the web at jmnam.org. There you go. News from Israel is next. Right, Beryl Wine continues with his amazing series uh, on the lost communities after that. And um, our special guests from the OU and the OU webcast coming up at 8 o'clock this morning right here at JM and the AM. Golly, it's all Israel Army Radio. 2 p.m. newscast for a Thursday next at JM and the AM. לליצאל השעה שתיים, כאן שיבל קרמי מנסור עם מה שקורה עכשיו. שר הביטחון משה בוגי יעלון מתייחס לקיצוץ המשמעותי בתקציבי הצבא ואומר קרבות שפגשנו בפעם האחרונה במלחמת יום הכיפורים פחות ופחות רלוונטיים. כתבנו טל אברהם. תוכנית מהפכנית בעוד שנים מעטות נראה צהל אחר אומר היום שר הביטחון דנו למסקנה שלנו להוביל זה פורמה משמעותית ולא לשעבד את העתיד למען העובד הוסיף השר ואמר כי יש להבטיח את היתרון הטכנולוגי חשבות בחימוש מדויק, מודיעין, תקשוב, הגנה אקטיבית וסייבר. חשד לאונס תיירת בחוף תל אביב, כתבתנו שרון פולבר. לפני כעשרה ימים התלוננה נערה בת 17 מדרום אפריקה, כי בעת שבילתה עם חברים בחוף בננה ביץ' בעיר, נכנס אחריה לשירותים צעיר, חטף את המכשיר הסלולרי שלה ואנס אותה. המשטרה עצרה היום שני חשודים בשנות ה-20 לחייהם בחשד למעורבות במעשה, האחד אזרח סודן שברשותו נמצא המכשיר הסלולרי, והשני תושב אום אל פחם, שממנו ככל הנראה רכש הנתין הזר. את המכשיר הגנוב. השניים מובאים בשעה זו להארכת מעצרם בבית משפט השלום בתל אביב. בעקבות תחקיר גלי צה"ל הבוקר על מעורבות הממשלה לאורך השנים בהקמת ופיתוח המאחז הבלתי חוקי עמונה, בימים דורשים להכשיר ולא לפנות. כתבנו עידו בן בג'י, עורך התחקיר, שוחח עם חברת הכנסת איילת שקד מהבית היהודי. לאור ההשקעה הרבה שהמדינה השקיעה בהקמתה של עמונה, לא יעלה על הדעת שהמדינה תערוף את המקום ותשליך את תושביו לרחוב ללא פתרון, וזו גם הייתה, דרך אגב, אחת המסקנות העיקריות של דוח אדמונד לוי, שמקום שבו המדינה הייתה שותפה להקמתו, אין לנקוט צעד של הריסה, אלא אם אפשר למצוא פתרונות אחרים. ובמקרה של עמונה אפשר למצוא פתרונות אחרים. מבקר המדינה יוסף שפירא אומר לגלי צה"ל, ככל הנראה לא אבדוק את פרשת האסיר X2. הוא שוחח עם כתבתנו יערה ברק. בעניין האסיר השני, צריך עדיין לחכות ולראות את, קודם כל את תשובת הנוגעים בדבר. האם בכלל אה, יש אדם כזה? מפני שהייתה הכחשה מפורשת. אז אם יש הכחשה מפורשת ואין כזה דבר, אז די לי בכך. איש העסקים אילן בן דוב ממשיך להסתבך. עכשיו הוצע צו לעיכול נכסיו. כתבתנו יונה לייבזון. בית המשפט המחוזי בתל אביב הוציא צו זמני לעיכול נכסיו של בן דוב בבנקים השונים, וכמוכן מגרשים בבעלותו בכפר שמריהו בגלל אי תשלום חובות של מיליונים. בן דוב נתן ערבות אישית על סכום של 168 מיליון שקלים, וכשנה חלפה ממועד פירעון החוב. מטרת הצו הינה להבטיח כי בן דוב לא יעשה שימוש בנכסים כדי לכסות חובות אחרים שאינם ללאומי. 
הוא לסיום, כדורסל, יום לפני שהפועל ירושלים עוברת מידי העמותה בראשותו לידיהם של אורי אלון ושחקן ה-NBA, אמר אסטודמאייר, יושב הראש המיתולוגי דני קליין נפרד. קליין דיבר היום בתוכניתנו עושים ספורט עם אלי ישראלי ואפי טריגר. צפתי לארה״ב, פעם שנייה צפתי, פגשתי אסטודמאייר, הוא יהיה פה בארץ בעוד שבועיים, הוא לא ידע מה זה הפועל ירושלים לפני, וכנראה שהדברים שלי כן עשו לאיזשהו ריגושים בלילה. And it seems as if we just lost the final part of our newscast from Israel. J.M. and the A.M. Thursday on this 11th of July and 4th of Menachem Av, the lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine have been the centerpiece of our incredible spoken word segments here at J.M. and the A.M. during the nine days, and uh, this is no exception. It's an amazing lecture entitled Rabbi Beryl Wine, The Lost Communities, this one concentrating on the area of Salonika. Tonight's lecture concerns itself with the Jewish community of Salonika. Uh, Salonika was uh, Turkish for most of the time that the Jews lived there, and it became Greek in the 1920s, the early 1920s, when after the First World War, Greece broke off and they uh, uh, took over uh, parts of... Uh, of uh, the Ottoman Empire. And today it is part of Greece. It is on the Gulf of Salonika and it is a seaport. And that was its main industry, its main commerce was based upon the fact that it was a large a commercial seaport that uh, supplied the Adriatic and the Aegean seas, connected them, and it brought goods from Asia to Europe. Now, uh, the Jewish community in Salonika was very old. We know from Christian sources that the Jews were there in the second and third centuries already, and that there was a large Jewish community. The uh, Christians attempted to uh, convert the Jews and uh, did not meet with much success. The uh, Jews of Salonika were treated very well by the rulers of uh, that part of the world because of the fact that the Jews uh, were a buffer to the Christians. So when the Romans had it, they used the Jews as a buffer against Christian influence. Later, when the Christians took over, the situation of the Jews diminished, but again, there was a great split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And when the Crusaders came in the 11th century and uh, came to allegedly conquer Palestine, so on the way, they made war with the Eastern Christians. And they sacked Constantinople. So the Eastern Christians used the Jews as a buffer against the Latin Christians, against the Western Christians, and they gave the Jews uh, special permission, freed them from taxes, gave them commercial rights, so that the Western Christians would not take over the commerce of the port, and that it would remain in hands that the emperor felt would be loyal to him. 
1170, the intrepid uh, Jewish traveler Benjamin of Tudela uh, visited Salonika, and he said there were 500 Jews that were living in Salonika. Now, uh, 500 Jews does not sound like a great deal uh, in our terms, but in terms of the Middle Ages, it was a sizable community because we see he visited communities in Provence that had only uh, 200 Jews where the Rivet was in Posquares there were only 40 Jews so Jews were in small numbers uh, probably where Rashi lived in Troyes there also were not more than 500 Jews and uh, in Mainz and in uh, Spires and in Worms that tri-community that already had about 1,500 Jewish families. But you have to remember that in the 11th century there weren't, there were probably no more than 10,000 Ashkenazic Jews in the whole world. And it's from these 10,000 that the great Ashkenazic community uh, developed and spread. And before 1939 there were uh, about uh, 14 and a half, 15 million Ashkenazic Jews in the world, a number that we have not uh, been able to make up. Jews came to Salonika from all over. Uh, they came from Italy, so that eventually Salonika had what we call Nusach Roma, the Rome, uh, Romani uh, liturgy, which is not Sephardic and it's not Ashkenazic. It's a liturgy all unto itself. Uh, in Italy today, there still are uh, small Jewish communities that follow the Romani liturgy. But because the Italian Jews were the ones that came in the, uh, in the Middle Ages to uh, Salonika, uh, so therefore they uh, instituted this uh, Nusach, this ritual. But uh, the development of Salonika comes uh, after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. And uh, the Jews started to arrive in Salonika, Spanish Jews started to arrive in 1453, 50 years before, 40 years before the expulsion itself. And uh, by 1570, one century later, there are 20,000 Jews in Salonika which was 70% of the population of the city. And the city became a Jewish city. The Jews developed the port. So the port of Salonika was closed on Shabbat till the 1900s. And not only the port was closed, all commercial enterprises in Salonika did not operate on Shabbat. Because the Jews were the main merchants, the Jews were the bankers, uh, and the uh, Jews were the retailers in town, and therefore everything was closed. Now, we had an analogous situation, believe it or not, in the United States of America regarding Charleston, South Carolina, which also was a great port. It was the entry port uh, in colonial times for the South, and in Charleston, the Smartic Jews also controlled the port. And the port, therefore, was closed on Shabbat in the 18th century and for a large period in the 19th century. And that also was true in Savannah, Georgia, which also was a port on the Atlantic. 
that if, because the Jews were the chandlers, they were the one that sold to the ships, they were the refitters, the suppliers, and they were the customs brokers, uh, they were in the, uh, so to speak, the import-export business. You know what they say about the import-export business is that there's one little box that keeps on traveling around the world. That's the import-export business, and nobody ever opens the box, because if they do, the business is over. So it's just to uh, keep on moving the thing all over the world. But uh, the Jews were in Salonika, they were the port. And uh, as we'll see later, uh, the Jews of Salonika became the stevedores here in Haifa and Ashdod. And they're still the port. So in everything that you read about the slowdowns and everything, you'll see from the lecture that's in their blood. That's part of the DNA. And uh, unless you appreciate that and understand it, then you don't understand why they can keep, you know, 40, 60, 80 ships waiting in the harbor while they go to lunch for a week or two. So uh, the Spanish Jews came. Uh, the Spanish Jews came with all of their talent. Those that came in 1453 were able to come with their money as well. And uh, after the expulsion of the Jews in 1492, and the expulsion of Jews from Portugal in 1496, Moranos started to come, conversos. In other words, Jews who had converted officially to Christianity in Spain or Portugal, and then they saw the Inquisition was going to destroy them, and they saw they would not be able to have any Jewish life whatsoever, so somehow they escaped the Salonika. And here... We have an enormous dispute as only Jews can have. They come to Salonika and the Nusach, the liturgy in the synagogue, is Romani, is Italy. That's not their Nusach. Their Nusach is Spain or Portugal. But in Spain and Portugal itself there are over 30 different Nuschaot, over 30 different liturgies and which Slichot to say and which Piyutim to say and when to say it. So anyone who has been in a synagogue knows that uh, these matters are of great import. Uh, people love to dispute uh, regarding them. I have a story that I always tell. I had an uncle, a blessed memory, who was a uh, Slabotka uh, student, and he came to America uh, before the First World War, and uh, he went to medical school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and he uh, needed money and he didn't know what to do and then he saw an ad in the paper that the uh, state prison system in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin needed someone to conduct high holiday services for the Jewish inmates of the jail in Madison so he applied and he got the job and he went to conduct the services for the prisoners in the jail. And what happened was, it came Yom Kippur for Mincha, and they were late. So he started to skip some of the piyutim. And a guy got up in the back and said, what do you think we are here, Reform Jews? So uh, it's, a, it's not a light matter to omit the piyut or to include one. And therefore there was a tremendous, tremendous machlokas in Salonika. And then the Machlokas was complicated by the arrival of Ashkenazi Jews. 
And the Ashkenazi Jews uh, naturally insisted on their liturgy. The Ashkenazi Jews came from uh, Germany and Czechoslovakia. And why did they all come to Salonika? Because in Salonika the Jews had freedom, relatively speaking, for 50, from the 1500s, that would be considered freedom. Uh, they had an opportunity to make money, and it was a large, settled community. And the climate was better than it was in, certainly in Germany and in Northern Europe. And Jews came, so now you had three the distinct communities in Salonika. You had the old Romani community, you had the Spanish-Portuguese community in all of its different uh, forms. I uh, see here that there were 38 Spanish and Portuguese congregations, each of which had its own synagogue and retained its own ritual rites and liturgy in 1550. So you had 38 different Sephardic synagogues in uh, Salonika, and everybody's doing their own thing. The Ashkenazim, who were smaller in number, only had six synagogues. The old Romani had uh, over 20 synagogues. So you're talking in this community over 60 synagogues. And, uh, I mean, if you think 60 synagogues are bad, you had 60 rabbis who also uh, didn't always see eye to eye. And you had some of the great uh, Gaonim of Spain, before they went elsewhere, came to Salonika. For instance, Rabbi Levi Ibn Chaviv, the Ralbach, who later would become the chief rabbi here in Yerushalayim, and who would be the main opponent of Rabbi Yosef Karo and Rabbi Yaakov Beirav in the dispute over the smicha to renew the Sanhedrin. So Rabbi Yaakov Beirav and Rabbi Yosef Kara wanted to renew the Sanhedrin. And they were located in Sfat. And Rabbi Levi Ibn Chaviv, who was located here in Yerushalayim, opposed it for various reasons. And his opposition was so strong that the plan never could be effectuated. Uh, it died within one generation. But he was originally a Rav in Salonika in the Spanish congregations. There also was a famous Rav, Rabbi Shmuel de Modena, uh, the Marajdam, who, who was a great Rav and a great Gon. We have many Shilas and Chuvas, many responses from him. And he built a big, big yeshiva. So that they, not only a big yeshiva in terms of numbers, but in terms of quality. Don Yitzhak Abarbanel, Don Isaac Abarbanel sent his son Shmuel to study in Salonika in the yeshiva because he felt that that was the best yeshiva that, that existed at the time. So Salonika became a center of Torah and it became a center of Jewish commerce and it also became a center of Jewish printing. The, in uh, Christian Europe, uh, after the printing press was uh, came into being in the middle of the 15th century so the Jews naturally were interested in printing because of their love of books and because of the fact that printing was uh, in their time I guess what the computers has been in our time it's, it was a complete revolution in how people could study and how things could be disseminated uh, you didn't have to copy things by hand, and you could make books in many, many copies. It was a, uh, a complete breakthrough in the mentality of Europe. Now, the church was afraid of the printing press. 
And the church therefore controlled the printing press to the extent that you couldn't own a printing press or you couldn't print without their approval. It had to have the imprimatur of the church on the flyleaf in order to have it. And Jews were not allowed in Christian Europe to own a printing press. So therefore what the Jews had to do was use non-Jewish printing presses as the front for them. And we find that in the first century of printing, most of the Hebrew books are printed by non-Jewish printers. But in Salonika, which was under the control of the Turks, under the Muslim emperors, because as I mentioned before, it was part of Turkey, uh, there the Jews could own printing presses. And the Jews could print whatever they wanted. And therefore, there was in the 1500s, it was a center of Jewish printing. There were four different Jewish printing presses based in Salonika. Many Svorim were printed in Salonika. Chumashim, Sidurim, all sorts of things. Salonika became the center, a great center of Jewish knowledge because of the yeshiva and because of the fact that it had the printing press located in Salonika and you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to. In 1545 there was a great fire in Salonika that burned down the whole town. 8,000 houses and 18 synagogues were destroyed in the fire. But the Jews in Salonika, and the fire was not arson, it was just the, the type of housing that people had, thatched roofs, uh, a flammable uh, material, and the houses were built very close together, dense, so that if a fire occurred, in Eastern Europe, fires happened uh, on a regular basis. Valozhin burned down about four times in the history of the yeshiva. The Chafetz Chaim writes about Radin, that he was so proud that finally he was able to raise money to build a brick building so that it wouldn't burn down as all the other buildings burned down. And it didn't take much for it to burn. A spark, uh, a wind, uh, lightning, and the whole town went. So Salonika burned down in 1545. The Jews rebuilt it in two years. And uh, the commerce of Salonika reached its height to the extent that Salonika was uh, the most profitable customs port in the Turkish Empire. So the, the Turkish Sultan was very interested that the Jews should be successful because of the fact of the enormous income that they brought in. Because what happened was that a boat came from Asia, let's say, and docked in Salonika. The cargo was transferred to another boat that would take it further in the Mediterranean or it would take it to European ports. So then you have to pay customs. And the Jews were the customs brokers. They took for themselves and they took for the Turkish emperor. And uh, they uh, were the ones that organized this entire business uh, so that the wealthy Jews owned the business. The poorer Jews had jobs. They were the stevedores. They were the loaders and the unloaders. They were the schleppers. But everybody had a job. And the community was seen as a wealthy and strong community. In uh, the 1500s, there was a great Jewish woman by the name of Donna Grazia Beatrice Mendes, who, uh, she was a Portuguese, uh, she, she was baptized 
as a Murano, as a converso. But uh, when she grew up, uh, she and her husband escaped. And uh, they became, uh, it's, it's really a forerunner of the Rothschilds. Through their cleverness and their financial acumen, they became the financiers of the Turkish emperor. Now, kings, emperors always need money. No matter how much they have, it's not enough. And therefore, they became very wealthy. Her husband died, and unlike most widows of the time, or most women of the time, she did not retire, but she took over the business, and she was a better businesswoman than he was. And she built an enormous empire. An absolutely enormous empire of wealth throughout the Mediterranean. She had a nephew that she took into the business. His name was Don Joseph Naxos. He was the, uh, there was an island in the Mediterranean, Naxos, which he owned. Don Joseph Naxos, together with Dona Gracia Beatrice Mendes, bought the city of Tiberias, the city of Tveria, from the Sultan of Turkey in the 1500s. And they established a Jewish state. And they put out an announcement that all the Jews should come and move to Tiberias, to the land of Israel. And they had in mind that Tiberias would link up with Sfat, with Safed, which had a large Jewish population, and had great Gaonim. And that uh, this would be, so to speak, the beginning of uh, the return to Zion. But we all know that the Jews are always hesitant to grasp opportunities when it comes to the land of Israel. So they didn't get many Jews that came. And those that came, it's really the story of the Baron Rothschild. Those that came didn't expect to work. They said, we're coming, you know, let the Don Joseph Naxo support us. Let the Beatrice Garcia Mendes support us. Why should we have to work? It's enough that we came. And uh, so the, uh, after 70 years, the whole thing petered out. And the Turks took back the city. But it's, uh, it's a fact in Jewish history that there was a Jewish state already. But it never got off the ground. There was another great port in Italy called Ancona. And that port was also controlled by Jews. And it was a rival to Salonika. The commercial rival to Salonika. A new pope came and his goal... His ideal was that he was going to convert all of the Jews of Europe to Christianity. And he was going to begin with Ancona. And he therefore forced the Jews uh, to give up their businesses. Uh, he forced them, uh, many of them, to convert uh, at the threat of death. Uh, missionary priests... Uh, spoke in the synagogue and the Jews had to come and listen and he was and there was a pogrom in Ancona so Dona Grazia Beatrice Mendes organized a boycott of Ancona and she spoke to all the Jewish merchants in Salonika and in the other ports of the Mediterranean that no one should load ships going to Ancona and this was her attempt uh, to, so to speak, break the power of the church. 
at least as far as Jews were concerned. It, I would say that this is probably the earliest or maybe the only attempt of a mass Jewish protest against the activities of the church uh, during the Middle Ages or the early modern era. In fact, uh, we've never tried anything like it since. And it failed because the Jewish merchants uh, refused to boycott. So here you have the question which always exists. A boycott is a double-edged sword. And we've never been able to figure out whether it's good or it's not good. For instance, in the 1930s, there was an attempt in the United States by the Jewish community to boycott German goods as a protest against Hitler. And again, there was a great uh, split in the Jewish world whether or not to do so or not, because many said it'll only make it worse. In fact, that was Hitler's. Hitler said that the Kristallnacht was the response of the German masses to the Jewish boycott of Germany. So, do boycotts work or don't they work? Well, they make you feel better, that I'll tell you. But whether or not that truly is effective has always been a matter of debate, and I don't think the debate has ever been settled. Nevertheless, uh, the, uh, the fact that the boycott at Ancona did not work, and it did not work mainly because the Jews did not uh, support it, uh, weakened the position of Donna Grazia. She dies soon afterwards, and then her nephew, when he dies, and that whole empire uh, begins to uh, just fades away, and uh, we never had anyone like it uh, take it up again. Uh, she died in 1569. J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi uh, Beryl Wine is in the midst of a, an amazing uh, lecture series entitled The Lost Communities. He is discussing Salonika right now at J.M. in the A.M. 7.30 in the morning on this Thursday with 79 degrees, thunderstorms, and a high temperature of 84 we will continue with more of our barrel wine, and we'll get to our friends from the OU who are participating or leading a, uh, an amazing uh, live webcast on Tisha B'Av Day. We'll talk about that coming up. Rabbi Barrel Wine information for his lectures is 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechanish Masar of Zev, Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser, with morning chizuk. The Talmud in Chagiga relates that Rebbe took a Sefer Kinnis and started to read it. When he reached the Pasuk in Eicha, Shlich Mishamayim Aretz, that Hashem cast down the glory of Israel from heaven to the earth, the Sefer, the book fell out of his hand. Rebbe exclaimed, Me'igra Rama Lebira Mikta, it fell from a high roof to a deep pit. Rebbe felt that the Sefer Kinnis didn't adequately convey his mourning over the Chorban. What is it about the specific Pasuk that was so distressing? And what did it mean to suggest with the word Lebira Mikta, to a low pit? Hagoyen Rav Yashav defines the magnitude of the Chorban. He explains that when Tiferes Yisrael, the glory of Bnei Yisrael, 
the Torah and the mitzvahs lie crushed on the ground, there is still hope that someone will have mercy on it and lift it up. However, once the Tiferes Yisrael has fallen into the depths of the pit, the passerby isn't even aware that he is trampling on it. His pity will not be evoked even to care for the Tiferes Yisrael. It is known that the great Tzadik Rebbe Limelech of Lezhensk, at the time of his Golos, was once put up by a villager. During the night, the villager heard crying emanating from the room of Rebbe Limelech. When he asked him the reason for the tears, Rebbe Limelech answered, It was a kina on the Chorban of the Beis Hamikdash, because the Shechina, the Divine Presence, is in exile due to our sins. In the morning at Shachris, Rebbe Limelech explained to the villager the concept of Avodah Hashem B'Simcha and the hope that we will have Yeshua Hashem Keharafayin, that the salvation will quickly arrive. However, when Rebbe Limelech left, the villager got a little mixed up. That night, he went out and danced and rejoiced over the Chorben Beis Hamikdash. And so too, we in our day have to prepare ourselves to properly be misavel, to mourn over the Chorben Beis Hamikdash, and to have hope in the future salvation. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M., 7.33, Thursday morning. We're going to continue with our Iberal Wine. He's in a series entitled The Lost Communities, talking about Salonika. I wanted to mention weather-wise, we got one of those uh, National Weather Service severe thunderstorm warnings, Fairfield, Connecticut. This one is for you. Be careful out there today, folks. Could be uh, storms, thunderstorms coming at different times during the day. Make sure you have your umbrella and make sure you uh, stay safe out there. Could be one of those uh, days with these uh, on and off thunderstorms. Rabbi Barrel Wine on Salonica, JM in the AM. Why should we have to work? It's enough that we came. And uh, so the, uh, after 70 years, the whole thing petered out, and the Turks took back the city. But it's, uh, it's a fact in Jewish history that there was a Jewish state already, but it never got off the ground. There was another great port in Italy called Ancona, and that port was also controlled by Jews. And it was a rival to Salonika. The commercial rival to Salonika. A new pope came and his goal, his ideal was that he was going to convert all of the Jews of Europe to Christianity. And he was going to begin with Ancona. And he therefore forced the Jews uh, to give up their businesses. Uh, he forced them, uh, many of them, to convert uh, at the threat of death. Uh, missionary priests uh, spoke in the synagogue, and the Jews had to come and listen. And he was, v- and there was a pogrom 
in Ancona. So Donna Grazia Beatrice Mendes organized a boycott of Ancona. And she spoke to all the Jewish merchants in Salonika and in the other ports of the Mediterranean that no one should load ships going to Ancona. And this was her attempt uh, to, so to speak, break the power of the church. At least as far as Jews were concerned. It, I would say that this is probably the earliest or maybe the only attempt of a mass Jewish protest against the activities of the church uh, during the Middle Ages or the early modern era. In fact, uh, we've never tried anything like it since. And it failed because the Jewish merchants uh, refused to boycott. So here you have the question which always exists, a boycott is a double-edged sword. And we've never been able to figure out whether it's good or it's not good. For instance, in the 1930s, there was an attempt in the United States by the Jewish community to boycott German goods as a protest against Hitler. And again, there was a great uh, split in the Jewish world whether or not to do so or not, because many said it'll only make it worse. In fact, that was Hitler's. Hitler said that the Kristallnacht was the response of the German masses to the Jewish boycott of Germany. So, do boycotts work or don't they work? Well, they make you feel better, that I'll tell you. But whether or not that truly is effective has always been a matter of debate, and I don't think the debate has ever been settled. Nevertheless, uh, the, uh, the fact that the boycott at Ancona did not work, and it did not work mainly because the Jews did not uh, support it, uh, weakened the position of Donna Grazia. She dies soon afterwards, and then with her nephew when he dies, and that whole empire uh, begins to uh, just fades away. And uh, we never had anyone like it uh, take it up again. Uh, she died in 1569. Salonika is also famous or infamous for the fact that it was the center of the belief in Shabzai Tzvi. Shabzai Tzvi, the false messiah, appears on the scene uh, a century after Donna Grazia in the 1650s and uh, he says he's the Messiah and Jews believed him now as dangerous as boycotts are messianism is even more dangerous and Jewish experience with messianism has been uh, very very sad and tragic that's why I always maintain that you know uh, when the Messiah comes tomorrow, he's going to have a job convincing us. Now, Shabzai Tzvi, uh, it's estimated that a third of the Jewish people believed in him. Many great rabbis believed in him. To the extent that uh, rabbis who opposed him were driven out of their communities, uh, were subjected to all sorts of slander. Uh, one cannot really imagine the uh, 
the effect that Shafzai Tzvi had. And it was only when Shafzai Tzvi uh, was forced by the Turkish emperor, I mean the emperor went along with it for a while because it brought him in money. But when the, the uh, charade became too obvious, so then he gave Shafzai Tzvi the choice of either converting to Islam in a public fashion, or he would kill him. And Shafzai Tzvi converted. So now you have a messiah that became an apostate, became a mishumid, converted to Islam. Shafzai Tzvi had a great publicity man. Every messiah needs a publicity man. Can't do it without without PR. So uh, Jesus had Paul, right? Without Paul, there would be no Christianity today. Shafzai Tzvi had a man called Nathan of Gaza, Natan Hazati, not Nathan of Gaza. Now, whether or not it's not clear to us whether initially they believed in this thing, you know, or whether they were just con men. But the fate of all con men is that they con themselves. Eventually you believe your own lies. And Nathan was the one that publicized Shabzai 3 throughout the world. He's the one that sent out missives and all sorts of messages. Now that he became a Muslim, so Nathan said, now is the test of the true believer. Because now only the true believers will still believe in him. And those are the ones that will be privileged to see the Messianic era. And those that deny him are all gone. So we also have experience with, uh, with that type of phenomenon in the Jewish world today. Where... Even though, nevertheless, you have to believe. And it's the test of the true believer against all facts. This Shabzai Tzvi followers had a great center in Salonika. And uh, Salonika... In fact, uh, not only was a great center of Shabzai uh, Tzvi activity. This is the end of side one. J.M. in the A.M. Uh, part one, as you heard, of the first half of this lecture has been completed. Rabbi Beryl Wine is um, speaking to us about Salonika, about the um, historic city in a... Uh, Lecture series entitled The Lost Communities. Information about this series and, of course, all of Rabbi Beryl Wine's series are available at 1-800-499-WEIN. 1-800-499-WEIN. I encourage everybody to contact uh, the Destiny Foundation. Make Rabbi Wine's uh, lectures part of your spoken word entertainment and inspiration they are amazing and uh, it's not just uh, history it's also as we know philosophy and Jewish values and so many other topics that have been addressed by Rabbi Wine over the years Uh, 7.43 we're going to get to um, our friends at the OU who are going to uh, feature an amazing day on Tisha B'Av for those who are Anxious to um, 
spend their Tisha B'Av in a very meaningful way. We'll speak with them coming up at JMM. Right, barrel wine on Salonika. But they became like crypto Jews because the main Jewish community now rejected them, demanded that they give it up, so they went underground. And they existed underground for over 200 years. Secret shopsite Tzvi Jews. And they called themselves the Maminim. They were the believers, the true believers. They called themselves Chaveirim. They were the friends, the associates of themselves. They were the Bali Milchama, those who fought the war of justice. And they uh, took for themselves the name of Donme, which meant that they were considered to be apostates. And uh, they said that the other Jews were called Kofrim. They were the ones who denied. And this uh, had a serious effect in Salonika uh, because of the fact that you had this underground group that undermined the uh, authority, certainly of the rabbis, but undermined the Jewish community continually both uh, within the Jewish community and in representing themselves to the Turkish authorities who still ran the community. Because of this Shabzai Tzvi affair, for about 10-12 years, uh, the port of Salonika was like paralyzed because of the fact that the Jews didn't know what to do. Uh, there were Jewish businesses that sold their business because they were certain that the Messiah was here, so therefore they were going to leave. So they sold their businesses, they sold their homes. Uh, there were those that wouldn't load ships because they need the ships to bring all the Jews to the land of Israel. And then you had uh, uh, partnerships, because Jews always had partnerships. Uh, that one partner was a Sabbatean and one was not. And they couldn't get along. And they wouldn't speak to each other. And therefore the commercial trade suffered greatly as a result of the Shopsite Swede debacle. And Salonika began to decline. And it would decline uh, imperceptibly at first, but it would decline steadily until the end. It never again reached the heights that it did in the late 1500s and early 1600s in terms of its commercial strength and value and in terms of the Jewish community. Even though the Jewish community would grow and grow and grow, by uh, 1919 uh, there were about 95,000 Jews in Salonika. And at the beginning of the First World War in 1939, there were 65,000 Jews in Salonika. And again, they were 50% of the population. So Salonika remained the Jewish city, where the Jews are that numerous in a city, even if they be not the majority, it becomes a Jewish city because of the Jewish influence that exists in all areas of life. In uh, Salonika, the uh, spread of Kabbalah also took place. And uh, it was a Kabbalistic center. Uh, Kabbalah became very popular, certainly amongst the Smartic Jews, the Mediterranean Jews. And uh, it took on a uh, 
Kabbalistic rhythm, so to speak, that wasn't found necessarily in uh, other uh, places in uh, Europe. By the way, the crypto-Jews, to show their belief in Shabzai Tzvi, themselves converted to Islam and then remained Jews secret in the cellar because they wanted to imitate Shabzai Tzvi. They wanted to show that that's how it was supposed to be done. So to us all of this sounds wild, except that we know that it could happen today too. In the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire began to crumble. It was called the sick man of Europe. It was corrupt beyond all corruption until uh, until our neighbors uh, uh, taught them new heights in corruption. But it became extremely corrupt. And it became extremely disorganized, hard to govern. And in the 19th century, the spirit of nationalism took over. So that, for instance, the Greeks no longer wanted to live under Turkish rule. And the Armenians didn't want to live under Turkish rule. Uh, All of the countries that are carved out of the Ottoman Empire today had ethnic groups within them, the Kurds. Others that wanted to be independent, that didn't want to be under Muslim Turkish rule, and therefore you had this fragmentation of society and the inability of the Turks to really control their empire anymore. Part of this is caused by Western ideas that come. Now, in the 19th century, there was a war between Greece and Turkey. There was a Greek rebellion. Lord Byron participated in it. The Greeks were the heroes of the Western world. And they became the cause of all the intellectuals in Europe. We know that when intellectuals in Europe choose a cause, it usually is the wrong one. But... In that time, that was the cause, was the cause of Greek independence. It was also the time when Britannia ruled the waves, and the British Navy, it was the height of the British Empire, it was under Disraeli and Gladstone, and uh, that was the time when Lord Elgin took uh, the Frisee off of the Parthenon and moved it to London, where they built in the British Museum a special wing uh, for the it's called the British marbles, the United States marbles is something else. Marbles is a game of little glass beads that you play, children play, and so therefore, when you say in the United States, I went to see the Elgin marbles, they look at you like you're out of your mind. But uh, we all know that uh, the English language. Winston Churchill said that the United States and England are divided by a common language. And so this is only one example of it. But the the, the Elgin marbles are the frisee uh, uh, of the great Parthenon in Athens, which was taken to England. Uh, Greece is constantly demanding its return, but uh, England uh, somehow is not willing to uh, accommodate them. In any event, Western ideas came with the British, with the French, with everyone. And there was an organization led by Adolf Cremieux, who uh, has a street named after him in the German colony. 
uh, called the uh, Alliance Israel Israelite Universal, the Universal Kol Yisrael Chaverim was its Hebrew name, and this uh, French-based institution created Jewish schools throughout the world. They created Jewish schools here in the land of Israel, but especially they concentrated in the Muslim countries, in the Mediterranean countries, in Morocco, in Algeria, even in Iraq, uh, in Egypt, uh, and they concentrated in Salonika. And in Salonika they opened a number of schools. Uh, they began in 1873. Uh, by 1878 they had over eight schools operating. And the wealthy Jews sent their children to these schools because these schools you studied French, they had secular studies. The schools were not anti-religious, but the schools were not uh, in the tradition of the Torah schools which existed in the community. So therefore, in almost all Jewish communities, if you sent your child to the Alian school, so that meant, you know, that you weren't going to get Mafter Yona in the synagogue anymore. It was a statement. Uh, in retrospect, uh, the uh, Alian schools were very mild. Uh, and they taught a great deal of Hebrew studies, of uh, Torah, um, they were run by mostly by religious Jews. So if we look at it, you know, uh, over a century later, we may have less of a jaundiced view of them uh, than what existed when they came in. But everyone saw that they were the ones that were bringing Western ideas, Western culture into these Jewish communities. And in Salonika, uh, that led to a uh, weakening of tradition, a uh, weakening of the role of the rabbi, a weakening of observance, and the Alliance schools were followed by Zionism. The Salonika was one of the few places in the Mediterranean basin where Zionism was very, very strong. Uh, before uh, the First World War, I was before the Second World War, I'm sorry, over 20,000 Jews from Salonika had come to Israel to settle. In fact, the founder of the Israel Discount Bank, uh, he was uh, a Salonikan Jew, Pekanti. And other major uh, banking and uh, industrial firms here in Israel that were created in the 1920s and 1930s were created by Jews from Salonika. And as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, uh, the stevedores started to come also and were very active in the ports. They went back into the port business. In uh, 1911, uh, in Salonika, there still were 37 synagogues and a complete range of Jewish infrastructure. There was uh, an old age home, a Jewish hospital. Uh, in fact, there were the beginnings of a Jewish medical school. Uh, there was a, uh, an almshouse for the poor. Uh, there was a Achnosat uh, Orchim, a place for travelers to stay. Uh, all 
all of these services was a complete Jewish community. And uh, it seemed like Salonika would remain forever. But two things happened that changed the entire situation. First thing was the First World War. The First World War is uh, undoubtedly the greatest disaster uh, because of the fact that it led to all the other disasters in the 20th century. And it was a war that uh, four years into the war, no one figured out why there was such a war. What was the purpose? But the purpose was certainly to bring down the Ottoman Empire. And the out of uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was destroyed, and the Ottoman Empire was destroyed. When the Ottoman Empire was destroyed, so there was a revolution in Turkey. And Kemal Ataturk, uh, who was the general of the Turkish army uh, that defeated the British at uh, Gallipoli in the First World War, became the ruler of Turkey. Now, he was a dictator. Uh, and But he created modern-day Turkey so that even today when you go to Turkey, his picture is there, wherever you go. And uh, Ataturk uh, imposed a secular government on a Muslim population. And if you go to Turkey today, you can see it. I mean, no one is allowed to go in the streets in religious dress. So all the Rabbonim of Turkey go with baseball caps. Because if you, we can't wear a black hat on the street, it's not allowed. The police will come over to you. And the Muslims are not allowed to go in Muslim dress. Now there are, in Constantinople, there are enormous, uh, Istanbul, there are enormous mosques. Uh, dating back to the 14th century, but there are modern mosques, there are tremendous mosques, and there's uh, freedom of religion, but you can't practice it publicly. And uh, for instance, the Jewish schools cannot teach Hebrew. So you have this anomaly, this strange situation. Now, after the First World War, Greece and Turkey fought very, very bitterly. A bitter, bitter war. And that's why that animosity between Greece and Turkey remains until today. You know, the island of Cyprus is split. Uh, Greece and Turkey don't get along. Rabbi Beryl Wine is addressing the topic of Salonika as we explore the series entitled The Lost Communities. Uh, information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, which we highly recommend, especially each and every year during our nine days format. Uh, contact 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Special guests in our studio and on our telephone line as we're set to explore what's going to be happening on Tuesday, Tisha B'Av. It is uh, yet another amazing presentation from the Orthodox Union, and we explore that next in America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, uh, up in Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, and around the world in the web, jmnam.org. Rabbi Stephen Weil is Executive Vice President of the Orthodox Union, 
And uh, he is with us live in studio this morning. Good morning, everybody. While good morning, it's a great honor to be here. I appreciate that. Welcome back to JM and the M. Everybody, Tzvi Hirsch Weinrib is Executive Vice President Emeritus of the OU. He is in Israel uh, during this uh, fourth of Av, but he has been able to take some time out of his schedule to join us by telephone. Rabbi Weinrib, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Good to be here. Rabbi Weinrib, I don't know if you remember me asking you this question when uh, you were working so hard on the uh, Kinnis publication, but it uh, it must be interesting to prepare for uh, Tisha B'Av and to prepare for the webcast. I'm sure it takes not just these couple of days, but takes many weeks. And you find yourself concentrating on Kinnis during a period of time when everybody else is quote-unquote in a regular format, as we would say, in radio. Can that sometimes get you down a bit, that you've really been into this subject a lot longer than the rest of us? Yes. I think uh, <laughs> my practice really is to uh, be on the alert for material about Tisha B'Av all year long. Uh, and I remember one finding of hearing a very interesting and tragic story on Pastora from a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, so uh, there's a part of me, a small part of me, that's always open to Tishabov and to some extent uh, saddened by Tishabov throughout the year, but certainly especially at this time. And I guess in our tradition there's nothing wrong with that, with having a piece of you, uh, uh, you know, suffering from the destruction of the temple uh, even during the regular... You know, the project says in Tehillim, the Gilu Bira Odo, that even in moments of Gila and great joy, there has to be an element of trembling, and that element is with us all the time. And the truth is that uh, uh, Jews remember Yerushalayim every day of the year, and uh, the pious Jews have the minig of Tikkun Chatzos all year long. Now I ask Rabbi Weil the same question. What is it like when you know in the months of E.R., Tammuz, Sivan, Tammuz, etc., that you have to prepare for Tisha B'Av? Uh, my family can see it in my disposition. This year, as well as analyzing the Kinos, I've been going through survivors of the Shoah that Steven Spielberg created. Right. USC took it over, and they've put literally whole documentations, four-hour documentations on YouTube. So I've been going through a number of them, as well as reading two or three biographies of Polish survivors who suffered from September 39 all the way through the death march into 45. And it just it changed your whole personality. This is very important to you in that and we discussed this uh, earlier this morning. That's why I know it's important to you. And I, I guess to an extent it's important to everybody who presents on Tisha B'Av. You want to intertwine and weave as much of modern Jewish history into the Tisha B'Av narrative as possible. Yeah. Rabbi Soloveitchik, when he taught all day in Boston, he said a number of the kinos, they're written almost in an ahistorical way. That's not true of all of them, but a number of them. And some of the issues, for instance, with church theological anti-Semitism, Justin Martyr, St. Augustine, going throughout the millennia. Today you just translate it into Islamic, uh, whether it's coming from the Sunni or the Shia, theological anti-Semitism. The story of the son and daughter of Rabbi Yishmael Kohen Gadol right. is really the story of the survivor, the survivor who doesn't make it, who can't rebuild their life. It's the story of the child of the survivor. So much of what we analyze and study speaks to us. It resonates today. Excellent. Rabbi Weinrib, your uh, comments about trying to update the Kinnis situation by citing uh, episodes from more recent times? 
Yes, at more recent times, and I agree thoroughly with Rabbi Weil about the relevance of the Holocaust, and we've had, unfortunately, post-Holocaust tragedies over time. I intend, for example, to speak about some of the terror victims of the past year, terror here in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, so that's very, very important. It all traces back, really, to the words of Rashi, none other than Rashi and, and Divrei Hayamim, who says that Tisha B'Av is a time to mourn the entire Golos, not just the Chorban, but the entire Golos, which persists since the Chorban to this very day. Rabbi Weinrib's Tisha B'Av presentation is going to originate at the OU Center in Jerusalem, a building that we are very familiar with. I would assume, Rabbi Weinrib, that in addition to people watching around the world, you will have a gathering of people uh, uh, being inspired by the uh, your Kinnis presentation on the spot as well. Yes. Last year was the first year uh, that we did the webcast from Yerushalayim, from the OU Israel Center on 22 Karen Hayesod, and we opened it up to the public. We had a, a large audience. As you know, it's a relatively small building. Right. And packed wall-to-wall but we have several other rooms in the building where where uh, there's a, a plasma video screen on the wall and people can sit in those other rooms, which they tell me are better air conditioned <laughs> and, uh, and 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 uh, be part of the scene. <laughs> but uh, I have really I I have done this for many many years. Actually, this is the 25th year that I'm doing a Tisha B'Av program of this sort. Uh, Twelve of which have been on the web, available on the OU web. Um, and some of them have been done in front of audiences in shuls, usually large audiences. But I've done a few uh, in the OU meeting room with just 10 or 12 people present. And it's a very, very big difference. Uh, I'm sure that I, I imagine Rabbi Wild will agree, but I can say for myself, I need an audience to really get the adrenaline flowing. Very, a wide audience. Even on Tisha B'Av, huh? Rabbi Weinrub in Jerusalem, Rabbi Weil is here. You've chosen the Boca Raton Synagogue in Florida uh, for where your uh, Kenneth's presentation will emanate from, and we'll be able to see that live starting at 9 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. Yes. Over the few last few years, Rabbi Weinrub's been in Woodmere, in Israel. Right. I've been in Beverly Hills, uh, the Valley, Sharit Sedek in the Valley. And then the last three years, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg in the Boca Raton Synagogue. And it attracts people from, from Hollywood, Florida, from Miami Beach, from other parts of Florida, Palm Beach. They come for the program as well. So it'll be a large crowd. Yeah, usually is. Does the uh, large volume of people, in fact, uh, help you get through that whole presentation, as Rabbi Weinrub would suggest? To give an example, the 31st kinna, some of the kinnas that you sing responsibly. Right. So when you have a seaboard that's mourning together, no different than any of a seaboard that's singing Hallel together, right. there's some there's a dynamic, as Rabbi Weinrib spoke about. I can tell you this, one of the one of the experiences that impacted me was going to Baltimore. I used to go to Baltimore to learn from Rabbi Weinrib. This was, I was just a young married man, and uh, to hear him teach kinnos and teach the themes of Tisha B'Av all day, it shaped and it impacted me. And the other impact was of course, listening uh, to the tapes, there were about six or seven years of the Rav teaching in Maimonides school. He taught many more years than that, but that we have cassettes of. And he would go till three, four o'clock. I would as well. I think it just would wear everyone out, so we stop at around two, two thirty in Davin Mincha. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the deadline. Uh, Rabbi Weinrib, I'm going to put you and Rabbi Weil on the spot. You first. Um, Again, we we talked about and alluded to how over the last year, you're at like every year, you're uh, 
finding material and discovering different things that end up in your Kinnis presentation this coming Tuesday on the 9th of Av. I don't want to ruin anything for anybody in terms of what they may hear on Tuesday, but could you give me a little bit of a preview, something that you have learned over the last 12 months that you are incorporating this coming Tuesday? There are many things that come to mind, but there's one that's very exciting, uh, and I, I, I'll keep it as a surprise, but I'll tip you off a little bit okay. on it. <laughs> I came across a sefer recently published by Mossad Haraf Cook by a man whose name is Alter Zellner of London Munreich, and the title of the book is Uma the Ma'avakeha, mm-hmm. Nation and Its Struggle. His first chapter is devoted to Mered Galus. Now, Galus is not the word Golus or Galut. Galus is the name of a vicious Roman general who persecuted Jewish communities, mostly in the Galil, in the middle of the um, 4th century, about the year 350. And there was a rebellion against him, led by a Jewish man who was mentioned in the Medrash, in rare Midrashim, obscure Midrashim two or three times, as Notrana. Which we assume is related to the word notaire, which means to take revenge, to fight back. Uh, I'll be speaking about the conditions of that rebellion and the tragic aftermath of that rebellion. This is 4th century. This is 250 years after the Korban. Uh, there were still many Jews living in Israel, in in Feria, in Lod, in Ono, and uh, those communities were destroyed by this almost unknown uh, Roman general named Gallus, G-A-L-L-U-S. Uh, this is uh, almost... Uh, and uh, Professor Simcha Asaf found in the Cairo Geniza a kina which was written about Merit Gallus. And uh, the only fragments of that kina available, I'll be sharing those fragments and the bits of the pieces of that uh, kina with the uh, live audience, and of course with the web audience. Rabbi Weinrib with a great teaser for his Kinnis presentation from Jerusalem this coming Tuesday. Rabbi Weil, tell me something you discovered over the last 12 months which you will incorporate in your presentation from Florida, Tisha B'Av morning. Yeah, a couple of the themes we're going to bring in. If you go to the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue, they have a whole different set of kinos. Mm. Our kinos, for the most part, don't take into account the tragedy of what happened to Sephardic Jewry. Uh, we're going to speak about some of the events in Spain, the aftermath of the disputation of the Ramban in, in the 1260s, the aftermath of 1391, the terrible pogrom in 1413, Tortosa. We'll speak about a number of those issues as well. And this is a resource that we all need to know. One of the preeminent Holocaust historians, who's a masterful educator, his name is Professor Michael Birnbaum, B-E-R-E-N-B-A-U-M. Sure. He's the one who started Survivors of the Shoah. Right. He's the one who developed the, the Holocaust Museum the Memorial in Washington. Right. as well as in Belgium, where a half a million Jews were killed over 10 months, where it wiped out a good part of Ukrainian and Galician Jewry, not to mention certain German Jews. My family, half of my family, were, were carbon monoxide to death in Belgium. He developed that memorial as well. So I've spent literally hours with him over the course of the last number of months incorporating certain themes that fit into the words of the Kinos that speak to us, the generation, you know, the, the orphan generation. A few other themes as well. Unbelievable. Uh, and, and just the... Most synagogues, as you alluded to, I don't even know if purposely, but most synagogues would not 
in their Kinnis presentation be as diverse as exploring the Sephardic experience, for instance, as you just said. And this uh, venue gives us more of an opportunity to do that, to open up the world and make people understand what all Jews have gone through and the different things that they lament on Tisha B'Av. 11 minutes after 8 o'clock Thursday morning, J.M. the Amber by Weinrib is in Israel, where he'll be doing the uh, Kinnis presentation and his uh, analysis and uh, lecture on Tuesday. You'll find it on the web, ou.org. In fact, I noticed this morning that if you go to ou.org, you can actually register for the event, and you'll be uh, able to have access to all the uh, video presentations from past years, and obviously the live webcast that Roy Weinrib and Roy Weil will be doing. Roy Weil is here uh, in uh, New Jersey and will be in Florida on a Tuesday morning, where he will present uh, from the Boca Raton Synagogue. Everybody in our uh, listening uh, range, and now it's uh, international, as we know, uh, are invited to both locations, the Boca Raton Synagogue for Tisha B'Av services on Tuesday morning, and, of course, the OU Center for Tisha B'Av services on Tuesday morning uh, in Yerushalayim. You are invited to participate and be part of the crowd as, um, as we um, uh, go ahead and present... Uh, their presentations. Uh, we, uh, here on the, uh, what we like to call the network at NahumSiegel.com, JMNAM.org, will be carrying, uh, the OU presentations live throughout the day. You'll have an opportunity, uh, to access it through that means as well. So we are fully behind this project and proud to be associated with what the OU is doing. Uh, all the, um, the, all the, pa- you mentioned to me off the air, all the past videos are there for people to access. And, uh, if they do explore the website, if they do explore the page that's dedicated to this, they will get, it, people shouldn't think that it's a, um, it's a uh, monologue, Tishabov, and that it's all one theme. You, they'll be able to get a variety of, uh, of inspirations yes. from those. Uh, first of all, I, I want to express our gratitude on behalf of Rabbi Weinrib, myself, and the complete OU family. We look up to you. Now, Thank from you. The role that you play for all Jews, literally from you, all Jews of the spectrum, and it's our greatest honor to partner with you and JM and the AM. Thank because, you very much. Because we know the message that you convey is, is a message of health, of decency, of sincerity, and, and of a quality Judaism that, that inspires and transforms all Jews. Appreciate that. Uh, yes, on the website, we're going to have the opportunity, literally there'll be about 18 to 20 different videos. So you have the option of going live with, with Rabbi Weinreb or myself. You have the option of hearing us, you know, it's going to be replayed. Right. But there are smaller sections. In other words, if one wants to take this theme, that theme, there are different 20-minute videos, 40-minute videos. And last year, we were fortunate between the two live webcasts, Rabbi Weinreb from Yerushalayim, myself from Florida, and the various videos, we had over 20,000 different listeners. Now you know why we want to be part of this, Rabbi Weil. <laughs> you get big numbers. <laughs> yeah. and it, it could be that it was a Sunday. Our numbers were up a little bit because it was a Sunday, but we had over 20,000 different listeners. See, on the I would argue that those who are trapped at work because they can't get off of work on Tisha B'Av will have it on in the background all day long. So we'll see what happens. So I have a feeling a lot of people are going to be listening from around the world. Could you tell me about the uh, DVD that was prepared? This is not the first year that yes. a DVD was prepared to actually uh, be sent out to different communities so synagogues can show it, people be inspired even before Tisha B'Av. What was this year's project about? 
Yes, uh, this year we had four talks. We we do it together in conjunction with with Yeshiva University. Rob right. Shore of the CJF. Right. So it was Rabbi Yaakov Glasser, myself, re- representing the OU, and representing YU was um, the new Mashkiach of the high school, Rabbi Moshe Weinberg, mm-hmm. as well as I believe it was Dr. Smadar Rosenzweig. Uh, correct. That's what we have here. Enough. Correct, Professor Smadar Rosenzweig. Right. So hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully it'll be. I I can tell you from the two OU presentations. Not not to speak about myself, but the material, it was real quality. Now, I want to ask both of you, Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib, about the title of that DVD. It is entitled, Making Tisha B'Av Relevant to Us Today. We touched on this historically somewhat, because, again, the references that you and Rabbi Weinrib are making to modern Jewish history throughout your presentations. But there are a lot of people, you have to admit, who, you know, Eicha shows up Monday night, and uh, before that... They may not have thought much about Tisha B'Av, or you know, they can't turn that switch on. How do you address the issue of relevance in that type of abstract manner? That's I'm going to let Rabbi Weinrib speak, but that's <laughs> when Rabbi Weinrib spoke about the fact that he's thinking about this all year long. Uh, I would concur. Right. The, the issue is how to speak to people's hearts, how to speak to people's minds. After all, on Tisha B'Av, every Jew across the world, man, woman, whether we have parents or don't, we're all sitting shiva. The kinos are the hespedim. We're reliving the tragedies. We're re-experiencing the tragedies. No different than Seder night when we re-experience the emancipation, our exodus. So what happens is you've got to make it relevant. It's got to break people. A, a, a funeral is not a time of intellectual interest, uh, retrospect. It's a time of, of, of pain, of hurt, of cry, of sorrow. It's a time of Bechi and Hesped. I'll let Rabbi Weinrib speak. Rabbi Weinrib, uh, can someone come up with that Bechi and Hesped uh, if they haven't thought much about Tisha B'Av until Monday night? Uh, I, I, I agree thoroughly with Rabbi Weinrib's approach. There's also another approach that, that cuts deeply, yeah. and that is when we reflect upon the reasons that our museum, our prophets, and Hazal gave us for why uh, there is the Wachobanos and why uh, uh, there are continual tragedies throughout uh, Jewish history. Those sins are still with us. There is still Sinatinam, there is still Lashon Hara, there is still Chilul Shalos, there is still the lack of Mishpatik Staka that will bring us back. So these, all these themes, all these faults that need improvement and correction are contemporary problems. Uh, and uh, I, I plan to raise and discuss some of them, uh, but that's another way to access uh, a feeling of connectedness in people. Uh, the problems facing the Jewish people still face the Jewish people. We still uh, have not uh, cured the problems that got us into Gullus in the first place. Well, no question about that. Rabbi Weinrib, there was an interesting quote I saw in reference to what's happening Tuesday on Tisha B'Av and Yerushalayim, your presentation of the OU Center, you said this year, and this is a quote, I plan to speak about Israeli Supreme Court Justice Menachem Malone, Holocaust survivor Joseph Friedensen, and also Rav Nuvert, author of the Shmirat Shabbat Gehilchata, which I'm sure a lot of people in our audience are familiar with. Uh, that seems to be quite a trio. Well, actually there's a fourth person of a trio, a young man, a father of several children who was killed uh, by uh, terrorists this past year. But let's focus on the first three because they're much more well-known. Uh, one of the ways that I try to make it relevant and bring things up to date is by giving brief hesitation, uh on people who uh, passed away or in tragic situations were murdered 
during the past year. Mm. Uh, this, and I'm always alert to like who passed away this year. Last year was kind of obvious, and I devoted a good part of my time to who passed away just a few weeks before Tisha B'Av. Right. But this year I chose people who are very, very diverse, as you're aware, but who each in his own way was extremely important to the Jewish people, and each of whom has a connection to uh, Tisha B'Av. Menachem alone was an Israeli Supreme Court Justice who was Yeshiva-trained, Talmud Chacham, whose lifelong cause was Mishpat HaIvri, bringing Torah justice into secular Israeli law. Uh, whether how much he succeeded is a matter of dispute, <laughs> but that was his lifelong uh, endeavor. And Mishpat is certainly one of the themes of Tisha B'Av. We will read this Shabbos. Siyam B'Mishpat really was the first person to create the genre of Sforim, Picking the topic, in this case, of course, it was Shabbos, but picking the topic and giving you an encyclopedia of all the halachic aspects of that topic. And he did it for Shmira Shabbos. And the reason he did it is connected to his experiences in the Shoah and the Holocaust as a child. And I'm not going to share his reasons for that today here, but I will on Tisha B'Av. And Mr. Friedenson, Yosef Friedenson, was the editor of the Yiddish Report, which was the Agudah's Yiddish uh, periodical journal, which I read until it stopped being published recently. I read it thoroughly each time. Um, and he had a mission in life, and that was to remind us, and it's a story he famously tells, when a fantasist was confronted by a Nazi and told mockingly, your God has forgotten you, hasn't he? And the man answered, answered in Yiddish, nish total nish not totally and not forever. And that's a message for all of us to remember. Yes, we are in Gullus, but God has not forgotten us, not totally and certainly not forever. Ladies and gentlemen, we've gotten some amazing teasers from Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrub about what they're going to be discussing on Tuesday during the webcast for Tisha B'Av. I strongly recommend that everybody schedule their day, their Tisha B'Av day, around these presentations. Rabbi Weil, I cannot ask Rabbi Weinrib uh, for a comment about this because he's responsible for the translation. But are you still highly recommending the Koran Misora Tarav Kinot? If you can't, and the Kinot is a closed book without the Misora Tarav Kinot. It's just a closed book. Whether it was Rabbi Weinrib's translation or whether it was the outstanding job that Simon Posner did on the commentary, right. it takes. See, see I, the Ibn Ezra was very critical of Rabbi Elazar HaKalir because he spoke in such a rich Hebrew that, that had all of these references to Midrashim, to Psukim, to Ma'amari Chazal, that there's no way, unless somebody was a world-class scholar, you could understand that on the surface. So in modern times, it was the Rav in Boston in the 70s and early 80s who Doing opened this up. Thing, right? He opened it up. He, he made the Kalir into an open book. What did Rabbi Weinrib do? What did Simon Posner do? They gave us a translation that not only is accurate, but it gives you a flow, it gives you a sense of the the poetry of, of the Kalir, and at the same time an analysis where, where they open up these various references to Chazal. And again, 
there have been many attempts to translate and to explain the kinos. There's nothing that it's it's in a, a, a league, a universe of its own that work. And I'm not saying that because the OU published it. I would right. say that if anyone published that work. You know, it's interesting, and uh, it's such a point uh, uh, well worth noting. It, people who are really familiar with reading uh, Hebrew and and uh, you know Talmudic works, etc., people who don't have a difficult time, you know, picking up a a um, text and reading through it with Kinnis, they would, in many cases would have a difficult time. It, it is that it is that hard even for someone who has the acumen to go through uh, uh, you know uh, uh, Mishnaic or uh, Talmudic texts. Yeah, it's it's a radically different genre right. of of communication. Uh, Rabbi Weinrib, so now let me put both of you on the spot, and it's really unfair of me because I doubt either of you has your kinnis in front of you, but I'll ask anyway. Uh, with that in mind, and Rabbi Weil just really uh, summed it up beautifully in terms of the difficulty of the kinnis and how worthwhile a translation like yours is because of that. Uh, is there one kinnis specifically where you say to yourself, I wish the Jewish world could, could understand, could grasp the brilliance of this kinnis? There are many that come to mind. Uh, I'll just choose one because that's one that that is one that I will choose to speak about this tissue bub, but it's not part of the tissue bub daytime kinos. It's a kino that we say in the standard kinos of the previous night, this year mm-hmm. Monday night. Right. And it's a kino, and it's the only kino in the traditional Ashkenaz kinos, written by Shlomo Ibn Gaburo, who was probably the number two. A poet of the Jewish medieval times with the Yehuda Halevi. There are two kinos by Yehuda Halevi, not just Tion Tishali. There's one called Yom Achti, which is also by Yehuda Halevi. But the kino called Shomron, Titen Kol, by Shomron Ibn Gabiro, which can be found in the nighttime kinos and published again, second time, in our Koran OU kino toward the end of the kinos. This is a brilliant, brilliant poem. Uh, in which he uh, shows Jews in debate with each other. And you know what is the topic of their debate? Who is suffering more, me or you? <laughs> wow. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful poem. Just looking at it as a poem and as a kinner, uh, it, says, it says so much, especially so much between the lines. Fantastic. Rabbi Weil, is there one where you say to yourself, I wish everybody would hop? How incredibly brilliant this kina is. We're going to discuss it, Tisha B'Av Morning, as well as on the YUOU video. Um, it's actually not from the Kalir. It's from a great medieval scholar, possibly Rabbeinu Yechiel of Paris, the 23rd kina. I believe that the 23rd kina speaks to this generation. Why? It's not only the story of the son and daughter of Rabbi Yishmael Kohen Gadol, who had they not given up and died of depression literally died of depression they would have probably been freed emancipated, rebuilt their lives but you know we talk about 6 million what about the 7th, the 8th, the ninth million those who survived but never survived 1945 physically they're there they're a ghost of themselves, a pale shadow who've been the only time you could ever bring them back to real life is if you could get them to revert to their childhood go back to 35 or 34 but that was a rare moment in their life they lived 10, 30, 50 years after the Churban but they never lived they never lived a day those where's our gratitude 
Where is our profound appreciation and sensitivity to those? And what about their children? What, what about the children of a couple? I call them Hitler Shiduchim. He's from Poland and she's from Hungary. In a million years, they would have never married. But he's all alone. He lost his whole family. She lost her whole family. They have nothing. They meet each other in a DP camp. And the children grow up in a home like that. And what the children experience and how they suffer. That 23rd kina, although not the most complex and not the most difficult kina, it's rooted in a Gemara in Gittin, rooted in a Medrash in Eicha, that kina speaks to our generation. It speaks to you and I, the orphan generation. Because when our peers, who are children of survivors, who are going through what they're going through, or, or those survivors who are still alive, till this day, one-third of the survivors live under the poverty level. I'm not talking about the FSU. I'm talking right. about in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Israel. You know, we all show our profound gratitude to those survivors who have built day schools and built shuls and rebuilt their lives. What about the majority of the survivors who were never able to rebuild? That kina, I believe, speaks to our generation. Phenomenal, phenomenal point. Uh, Rabbi Weinrib uh, in Israel, Rabbi Weil here in uh, New Jersey, as we talk about uh, Tuesday, Tisha B'Av, a very important day, everybody. Uh, Rabbi Weinrib, I know that your uh, presentation Tuesday will certainly help a lot of people uh, have a much more meaningful fast and a much more meaningful day in general on this upcoming Tisha B'Av. Thank you so much for joining us, and the Hatzlacha Rabbah. I'm sure your efforts will be uh, amazing this coming Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch is the Executive Vice President Emeritus of the OU. On Tuesday, uh, you'll be able to join him at the OU Center in Yerushalayim for the Kinnis presentation. Of course, we'll remind you between now and then how you'll be able to access it, not just through us, but obviously the OU website is going to be chock full of tens of thousands of people logging on in order to be part of Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib's presentation. I, I turn to you in, in our final moments. And we, we've discussed on this program, God knows how many times with different guests, you know, it's Rosh Hashanah, and my, my, you know, Americanized, luxurious living kids, you know, can't get into the fact that there's a concept of, uh, of mi yechya mi yamos. It's Erev Pesach, and... You know, the, 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 the kids who have everything in this generation can't relate to the fact that, you know, for some Jews it was the only night of the year where they were able to actually feel like they had some type of uh, spiritual and psychological freedom. And now it's almost Erev Tishabov. And we have a lot of people, not just in the younger generation, but all of us, unfortunately, who are in, thank God, uh, you know, a, a country where we can be... Uh, uh, free and and live free and act free and that sometimes you know takes our focus away from the tragedy of the day. What could you tell everybody out there in terms of trying to focus on what the message is, the real message for Tisha B'av? Yeah, I would say two quick thoughts. One is it comes the Rav developed this. The Halach itself, I believe historically Jews always had this problem. I'm not talking about in the worst of times. I'm talking about right. when times were good. So what is the idea? From Shiva Asabatamas to Rosh Chodesh, we're in Yud Beis Chodesh. From Rosh Chodesh through the 8th of Av, we're in Shloshim. Every Jew is in Shloshim. On Tisha B'Av, we, we end up going into a modality of Shiva. What's the idea? How do you relate to something that you didn't experience? How do you relate to something that happened either centuries or millennia ago? So psychologically, you have to build up and prepare yourself for it. And the halacha facilitates that. That is the whole structure of the three weeks. But in that context, 
you know, and, and this is this is true of other times of the year. If someone's not learning, not studying, whether it's Yirmiyahu or Eicha, whether it is issues related to the Holocaust, whether it's the Kinos, there needs to be a limud, you know, associated with it. Because you can set up a halachic structure, but if you don't start experiencing it, learning it, living it, then you're not ready for Tisha B'Av. Right. It doesn't mean you can't walk into Tisha B'Av, but it's not the same Tisha B'Av if you haven't been building up to it since the 17th of Thomas. Yeah, and to, that, that this relates to what we said earlier in terms of someone just waking up on Monday night and, hey, you know, I'm at Eicha, you know, it's Tisha B'Av. The better you prepare for this day, the more meaningful it's going to end up for everybody. Yeah, our goal in this, Rabbi Weinrib, myself, the OU, our goal, and I want to thank the Parkoff family because it's Richard and Deborah Parkoff who sponsor this whole program and facilitate this program to be brought broadcast throughout the world and having the whole web set up for it. Wow. I want to thank the Parkoffs. They're, they're outstanding they are people. from where? From Lawrence, Very Richard nice. and Deborah, who, who each year sponsor this. They, what, what the idea of this program is, in the event someone just walk, woke up and, and said, oh my goodness, it's Tisha B'Av, at least they can experience the day to the best of their ability. And they have a choice. They can pick a video, they can pick a topic that hopefully speaks to them, that relates to them. And the advantage of the live presentations is is that in all seriousness, it'll be up to date, meaning you and Rabbi Winder are both going to be referring to things that are happening as we live now. And the other issues, I'll use analogy in medicine. Right. A, a GI is not someone who's a neurosurgeon. The reality is just like most rabbis are not experts, let's say, in Hilchus Gitten, cannot be supervising a get. That's a specialty. Right. So when it comes to teaching kinos, you could have great Talmudic Chachamim and great rabbis. This may not be their specialty. They're so busy all year long trying to learn, teach. So what we're doing is we're providing an opportunity for those who may not get it in their shul. Most of what they need in life they'll get from their shul. They may not get the same all-day experience in their shul. We're providing that opportunity through the auspices of JM and the AM, through the auspices of OU.org and OUTorah.org, and thanks to Richard and Deborah Parkoff. It sounds like both you and Rabbi Weinder are on your way to doctorates in Kinnis, Rabbi Weil. <laughs> that would be some distinction, huh? <laughs> yeah. We pray one day that we can get a doctorate in something else. You know, speedily, Bikar of Biamenu, it should be a doctorate in something else. Well, I would assume that down the road they change it from doctorate in Kinnis to something much more, you know, lively and happier once the uh, redemption arrives. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We will obviously continue to remind our listeners about what's happening to Shabbat Day between now and Tuesday and I want to thank you Nahum. thank you I mean, I'll tell you at the OU family we feel we feel profoundly grateful that we can be partners of you and JM and the AM I appreciate that and we're very excited to partner with you and, and really to have you as a leader of the Jewish people and you being the voice that communicates to world Jewry you do it in a sensitive way you do it in an inclusive way and, and from all of us at the OU the entire staff and the entire population it's a real honor to know that we've got you at the forefront. I thank you for that. I will say what I've... Uh, now you forced me to say what I sometimes uh, say on the air, and that is that early on, and I'm talking about 30 years ago, when most people did not take this radio effort seriously, among the handful that did take it seriously were representatives from the Orthodox Union. So we've enjoyed quite a relationship, and I thank you very much. Uh, I hope we don't have to fast on Tuesday. I hope. That all I really I hate to say this year by a while because you've been preparing for a year now, but I hope it's all for naught and that we are celebrating in Jerusalem, uh, as so many people, uh, as all of us, uh, hope and pray each and every year at this time. Amen. Uh, but, in, but if in fact, as we always say, 
Uh, if in fact we do open up our kindness on uh, on Monday night and read Eicha, uh, then I thank you in advance for what I'm sure will be a remarkable presentation and for all the work the OU has done to make this happen for everybody. So thank you, an easy fast, a meaningful fast, and uh, enjoy the folks at the Boca Raton Synagogue. I have a feeling you'll be joined by hundreds on Tisha B'Av morning. Thank you. 8.34, JM in the AM, and uh, we have a responsibility now to finish up Rabbi Wine's lecture on the uh, area of Salonika. Rabbi Beryl Wine is uh, lecturing uh, in a series entitled The Lost Communities. Salonika is his focus. We will try to reach its conclusion this morning. Again, a reminder, tomorrow at JM in the AM, even though our stream is somewhat limited, we're in an acapella format uh, today as opposed to all of our amazing usual live web content because we're on this nine days hiatus. But uh, our JM in the AM program continues as usual tomorrow, which means that Malcolm Holmline will join us at 7.40 in the morning with the weekly update or by Yudin from Israel with words about Parsha's Dvarim. We uh, highly recommend, as we always do, our Friday broadcast. Make sure you tuned in here at JMM. Rabbi Beryl Wine continues with his series on Salonika. Ataturk took two million Greeks and kicked them out of Turkey. Just two million people, he threw them out. Just as the Turks massacred a million and a half Armenians. And the Greeks were thrown into Greece. And many of them came to Salonika. The Greek government wanted to break the Jewish hold on Salonika. They wanted to make it a Greek city. And to do so, they imposed a punitive series of taxes on Jewish businesses which destroyed the Jewish businesses. And they forced Jews to sell real estate and businesses and commercial enterprises to the Greeks. They passed a law that everybody has to be closed on Sunday. No business to be done on Sunday. Which in effect uh, damaged only the Jews because now those that observe Saturday, so they were closed two days a week and uh, you're talking, you're not talking the time of a five day week as we are today and that brought serious, serious harm to the Jews in Salonika and they were openly anti-Semitic, the Greek government they said that they wanted to Hellenize Salonika they wanted to rid it of its cosmopolitan ambience which was a code word for Jews and then they said they wanted to get rid of all of the socialists and the communists which again was a code word for Jews and there were many Jews who were in the Greek socialist and communist camp and because of all of this there was a pogrom in 1930 in Salonika where Jewish businesses and homes were destroyed while the police stood idly by and watched it happen so that the Jewish population as I mentioned uh, began to take the hint and started to leave so from 95,000 before the first world war by 1939 there only were 65,000 left the end of Salonika is really a very very sad chapter Greece was invaded by Italy, by Mussolini and uh, the Italian army uh, performed very very badly 
the Greeks held them up. Uh, the British rushed troops to support the Greeks. And Italy uh, suffered a severe defeat. Hitler could not bear that his ally Mussolini should be so humbled. By the way, all of this was before the invasion of Russia. And therefore, many historians feel that uh, Greece and Yugoslavia, these two campaigns that the Germans engaged in in, uh, in late 1940 and early 1941, uh, is really what cost Germany the war against Russia, because they couldn't invade Russia now until the end of June of 1941. Originally, they were supposed to invade in March. And if they would have invaded in March, they would not have had the winter in front of Moscow uh, in uh, November 1941 that stopped them. Because they would have been there two months earlier. So that's part of the what if. But in any event, uh, Germany uh, sent its troops in and Germany defeated the British. The British suffered a, a stinging defeat. The island of Crete fell. In 1941, the SS shows up in Salonika. Now, in Salonika there was a rabbi, let me get his name so that we, uh, we have it correctly. He was an Ashkenazic rabbi, he was elected only in 1940. He was elected, Koretz was his name. Dr. Tzvi Koritz. Uh, he was elected because of his education. He was a doctor. And uh, he uh, was taken by the Germans and they took him to Vienna and he came back six weeks later and he became the head of the Jewish community in Salonika. And he assured the Jews that everything was going to be alright. And that if the Jews would only follow his instructions, uh, then they would be spared and, uh, and uh, they'd be able to ride out the war. Uh, without judging him, because who can judge under such circumstances, and who knows what, uh, what they told him in Vienna, and what his choices were. But... Uh, this was the pattern of the Germans wherever they went is that they got the Jews literally to do their dirty work for them they got the Jews, they made a Judenrat, they made a Jewish council they appointed Jews, so you have the man that was in Lodz who left his famous diaries and in every Jewish community throughout Europe where the Germans came they followed the same procedure so here they took uh, Koretz and uh, by 1943, uh, the Jewish community was completely impoverished. All their money had been taken from them. All of their businesses had been taken from them. They were subsisting on uh, a very, very minimal ration. So even though the regular Greeks didn't uh, wallow in a lot of food, but they had a lot more food than the Jews. The Jews had half the rations that the, that the Greek population had. And Jews began to die of malnutrition and disease. By the end of 1943 and the beginning of 1944, the Nazis began their selections. Uh, 
thousands of Jews were taken. Almost the whole city of Salonika, there were only 1,200 Jews that survived out of the 65,000. And they were all sent to Auschwitz. In fact, uh, the only part of the Holocaust that really affected Sephardic Jewry was the story of the Jews in Salonika. They were taken away. And they were shipped to uh, Auschwitz. Most of them were destroyed on the day that they came. All of Greece, uh, there were uh, only 15% of the Jews survived. And in Salonika the number was even less. Salonika was called the Jerusalem of the Balkans. Just as Vilna was called the Jerusalem of Lithuania. And uh, the uh, remnants of the Jews of Salonika, with the exception of about 40 families, attempted to come to Israel. Now there was a British blockade of Israel in 1946 and 1947. The blockade was uh, pretty much successful. Over 90% of all the shipping was intercepted and they were either sent back to the ports where they came from or they were interned in Cyprus. There was only one ship that made a fight of it. In November 1945, there was a ship named the Beryl Katzenelenson, named after the famous Labour Zionist leader. Two British frigates pulled up along the ship, and demanded, as they demanded on all the other ships, that the Jews surrender themselves. But this ship was full of longshoremen, stevedores, from Salonika. And uh, they rammed the two British frigates. They ran their boat into the British boats. And then they stood at the decks, I want to read to you, they stood at the desks with iron pipes and crowbars and the implacable promise of death in their eyes. After 90 minutes of tense standoff, the British warships and its marines suddenly reversed course. The Barrow Katzen Ellison then proceeded towards the coast of Israel. Its passengers had awaited no further assurance of deliverance. Achieving the Holy Land on their own, this time they were redeeming themselves. It was the only ship that fought. And it was the only ship that got through in that fashion. And you can meet their descendants, you can probably meet some of them as well, but they're in Jaffa and in Ashdod and in Haifa in the ports. So as he himself describes them, rough, coarse, difficult people from the Jerusalem of the Balkans. And because of the, what they went through and because of their, uh, of, uh, their experiences. Today, uh, there are, as I mentioned, there are about 40 Jews left in Salonika. And there's one synagogue. And uh, Salonika is over, at least as far as the Jewish community is concerned. Most of the people there, almost all of them are of advanced age already, and uh, 
time and attrition will take its course and end the community. But here was this great community, the Jerusalem of the Balkans, that had existed for millennia from the second century on and had produced what it produced and it was such a great community but the exile closed in on it there are synagogues of Salonican Jews all over the land of Israel even here in Yerushalayim there there is a synagogue of their Nusach and uh, they uh, uh, as I mentioned uh, they uh, have uh, adapted themselves to our country and they have brought with them much of what they were in Salonika but the Salonican Jewish community, as it was known, no longer exists in the world. This concludes lecture number 213, entitled Salonika, by Rabbi Beryl Wine. JM and the AM, and uh, all of Rabbi Wine's lectures are available to you if you uh, contact 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, to the web at rabbiwine.com, that's rabbiwine.com, and you'll be able to... Uh, Secure this lecture series and, of course, the hundreds and hundreds, I would say thousands at this point, of lectures that Rabbi Wine has done on history, philosophy, etc. The one we did this week on Jewish values, I've uh, been informed, has been uh, very well received by our listeners, a lot of interest in it. It was uh, a great one. If you missed any of it, obviously you could check out the archives and you could order it by going to Rabbi Wine's site or by calling the number. 79 degrees, thunderstorms, a high temperature of 84. It's a Thursday at JMAM tomorrow. Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He will do the weekly update at 740 with us tomorrow morning. Make sure to be tuned in for that. It's always interesting, I can tell you that much. Uh, Rabbi Yudin will be live from Israel tomorrow. Reminder that the OU is going to be presenting an amazing webcast starting at 9 o'clock in the morning on uh, uh, Tisha B'Av. Both are by Weil, who will be at the Boca Raton Synagogue, and at that time you'll be able to see him and hear him live. And Rabbi Weinrib, who's going to be at the OU Center earlier that day, uh, what will be morning in Yerushalayim. Um, uh, we'll both be presenting uh, for Tisha B'Av 5773. There'll be videos online of prior Tisha B'Av presentations that you'll be able to access. All happening at OU.org. You can actually register for the event if you go to OU.org and fill out the form, and you will see exactly what it's all about when you go to the website. We will be simulcasting everything starting at 9 a.m. after our own Kinnis service at 7 uh, o'clock on uh, Tuesday morning. So we will continue between now and then to update you and to give you the latest information regarding the uh, webcast, just pay careful attention to JM in the AM. All right, uh, we will wrap things up with Ray Wine's opening words on his lecture about Frankfurt. We are doing the Lost Communities here at JM in the AM, so Frankfurt is next. And, of course, we will uh, play the uh, lecture, this lecture, in its entirety tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Make sure to be tuned in for that. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the uh, community and city of Frankfurt part of his Lost Communities series at JM in the AM. Enjoy. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns itself with the history of one of the main Jewish communities in Europe, a community that flourished for uh, 750 years, the community of Frankfurt am Main. That's uh, the reason that the lecture is starting on time tonight. <laughs> Now, there are old uh, traditions regarding Frankfurt am Main as to when it originally was founded as a Jewish community. The earliest record that we have 
as the Jewish community dates from the beginning of the 1200s, from the beginning of the 13th century. It's interesting that uh, when the Crusaders destroyed the other Jewish communities in uh, Germany, Spires and Worms and Mainz, there's no record of Frankfurt at all. And even uh, in uh, as late as 1241, there were only were 180 Jews that lived in Frankfurt. And we'll see that Frankfurt was a relatively small community till uh, well into the 17th century. The history of Frankfurt can really be summed up in uh, three words. Pogroms, rabbis, and disputes. Because the community had unfortunately great pogroms, fortunately very great rabbis, and again unfortunately very bitter disputes within the Jewish community itself. And because of that, therefore, that's how it shaped the community. The first pogrom that we have noted dates back again to 1241, when uh, the 180 Jews who lived in Frankfurt all were massacred. And then there was no community again until 1246. Now, in the 1200s, it was the time of the Holy Roman Empire. So there was an emperor, and then there was the archbishop who headed the church, the Catholic Church, and then there was the city of Frankfurt itself. All three levied taxes against the Jews, so that the Jews paid uh, an enormous amount of money, relatively speaking, and certainly relative to the rest of the population, for the privilege of living in Frankfurt. And the uh, competition between the archbishop, between the church, between the emperor, and then between those two and the city, the municipality itself, as to who could extort the most money out of Jews, this was the story of the Jews in Frankfurt for a long period of time. The Jews in Frankfurt were mainly money lenders out of the population, and we'll see again in a moment that it was a very small population, but 60-70% of the Jews were engaged in money lending. And money lending was as follows, they borrowed money from noblemen, the Jews themselves did not have the capital, so today we call it banking, where the bank takes your money, and lends it out at a rate of interest and pays you a smaller rate of interest. And uh, the spread between the two rates of interest is basically the profit of the bank. Well, in the Middle Ages, in this period of time, the rates were usurious. They were tremendous. The cheapest rate was 34, 35%. Many times the rate was 50%, which meant that the loans could almost never be paid back because the interest payments were so large. And uh, because of that, there was always this tremendous risk of never recovering your capital. You would lend somebody a hundred marks or whatever, and they'd never pay you back, but meanwhile he'd pay you four or five or six hundred marks in interest. So that was the basis of money lending. And because of that, you can imagine it was not a popular 
the people who lent the money were not popular with the populace. The people who borrowed the money felt, and justifiably so, that they were being extorted. And this always put the Jews in a precarious position. Because many times, and especially it happened twice in Frankfurt in the 14th century, in the 1300s, the debtors who owed the money gathered together as a mob and went and burned down the Jewish houses, went and burned down the Jewish neighborhood, because that's how they got rid of the debt. And therefore, uh, the, uh, the business end of Jews in the Middle Ages was uh, terribly precarious. Because the Jews were forbidden in Germany to do anything else. They couldn't own real estate, couldn't trade in weapons and cloth and spices and silk. They weren't allowed to do any of that. And uh, they couldn't uh, be farmers because they couldn't own land. So there was really no way of making a living. And this uh, method, therefore, of money lending or of operating small stores or being a, a tradesman, a shoemaker, a carpenter, etc., were the only means available for a Jewish uh, economy. And it's not surprising, therefore, that there was this tremendous push of French and German Jews eastward towards Poland, towards Slovakia, because in that period of time, the 1200s, the 1300s, the kings of Poland and Slovakia invited Jews to come and gave them rights and privileges, allowed them to be merchants, and because of that, the uh, Jews followed the route of opportunity and moved east so that Eastern Europe became the bastion of Jewish life in Europe while Germany remained secondary because of the problems involved in making a living. In 1349, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, struck Europe. We cannot imagine uh, the effect that that plague had upon Europe. One-third of the population died. Entire cities were emptied. The forest came back and reclaimed all of the cleared land. It was a, uh, a time of uh, mass destruction. And what made it even worse is that there was no explanation. No one knew the idea of contagious diseases. Uh, no one ever heard of the bubonic plague. Uh, no one ever realized that it could be caught merely by breathing the air, uh, let alone being bitten by the flea. In the Middle Ages generally was a time of enormous superstition. The people believed in all sorts of things, demons and dragons. The uh, whole industry which exists today in the entertainment world of all of these imaginary demons and dragons is really a throwback to the beliefs of the Middle Ages. Except today, so to speak, we think it's in fun. We think that it's not serious. But they took it that it was deadly serious. So there were a group of people who were called flagellants, who somehow whipped themselves with a lash, with a whip, as a penance 
because they thought that there must be some tremendous sin that they committed in order to bring this plague on all of Europe. And they traveled from town to town whipping themselves. They also traveled from town to town creating pogroms. So in 1349, they came to Frankfurt. And first they extorted an enormous amount of money from the Jewish community. And then they set fire to the Jewish neighborhood. Now you had, all the buildings were built of wood and of thatched roofs. So that uh, we'll see that in Frankfurt the city burned down five, six, eight times completely. And the Jewish neighborhood... Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture series at 1-800-499-WEIN or... RabbiWine.com, RabbiWein.com. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, 91.9 FM in Rockland County, around the world in the web, jmnam.org. Tomorrow we'll begin our Friday program with Rabbi Wine on Frankfurt. And we'll get to the conclusion of that lecture, and of course, weekly update, Rabbi Yudin, and much, much more tomorrow morning, all on JM in the AM. Have a fabulous Thursday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember to pass, live the present, and trust the future.